0: Welcome to episode 304 with my guest Paul Goebel. Uh, before I uh, give you all the spiel about what the this show is and all that other stuff, I want to uh, let you guys know that we have recently added Patreon as a way to uh, financially support the show. And it's a really, really cool thing. Um, I know some of you uh, currently where we take one time or recurring um, uh monthly donations through PayPal, which we will continue to do. But a lot of people uh, don't like PayPal and are looking for for an alternative. And Patreon is a really, really great uh, alternative. So I just went and set up a Patreon page. And the cool thing about this is that I can give rewards uh, based on uh, the level of uh, donations. It's... um, so go to, uh, patreon.com slash mental pod and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Um, and, uh, yeah, like some of the rewards are going to be, um, uh, me, uh, thanking you or cursing you out, uh, depending on which kind of Pop-Tart I'm, um, I'm eating. Um, it would be a video of that, uh, maybe a little video of Herbert's butthole, um, uh personalized voicemail messages, um, reading Herbert's Shame and Secret Survey, reading uh, DJ Voices' uh, Shame and Secret Survey, Um, and then uh, towards the higher end of monthly donors would be um, one-on-one video chats. So, uh, again, go check it out. at patreon.com slash mentalpod and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And, uh, yeah, if you... uh, want to uh, move uh, over there from PayPal that's awesome um, so I won't freak out that uh, people are are canceling um, I'm going to assume that you're just migrating over to uh, to patreon but I'm really excited about it because it's it's so interactive with donations and uh, to be honest I've been looking for an excuse to begin migrating from uh, from PayPal um, and Anyway, that's enough about that. Um update. I don't know what exactly is going on uh with me uh, emotionally, but I've been the last couple of months I've just been running from something I don't want to feel. And um it's just like I know you guys know that feeling is uh, where it's like like somebody scooped a hole out of your chest and um it's it you know i I've, I've been trying to numb myself with you know I did it with civilization I did it with Netflix and now I'm doing it with pornography and that's you know that's kind of been a on and off struggle with me for a lot of years but um I got approached um by uh, some people at uh, a, a place called BetterHelp, and it's a, um online therapy service, and they asked if I would be interest in, interested in trying them out as uh, a sponsor, and so I said, well, I would want to try your service first so that I could, you know, truthfully say that I had a good experience doing it, and so I've been talking to them like the last month or so and, um, met some of them in person. And I said, I want to try a couple of different, uh, therapists. And so, um, I've tried, uh, two different therapists and I'm, I'm with the second one now. And, uh, we've done about three sessions, uh, I think together. And I really like her. I really like her. And, um, she's from the stuff i've told her so far um she has kind of a game plan to try to maybe unroot some trauma that hasn't been dealt with yet um so this is kind of a weird um me telling you about better help but also kind of um letting you know what what's been going on with uh, with me lately um my hope is that um, that they continue to um, sponsor the show because so far I really like their product. Um, oh, I hate calling it a product; it is so disgusting. But um, I checked out their uh, their website, looked at a lot of the therapists that they have on their their staff, and um, they're credentialed. Uh, the feedback that people have, have given uh you know clients that 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 use them um seems really great so um give it a shot uh if you would uh cuz i think this this could be a really good fit for a sponsor and i know so many of you live in the boonies where there is no quality therapy um or it's it's hard to find so go to betterhelp.com/mental and uh complete their questionnaire uh then you're going to get matched with a uh, betterhelp.com counselor and you'll get to experience a free week of counseling and see if uh online counseling is uh is right for for you um i i didn't know what to expect from it but for me it's all about the eye contact and um uh both of the therapists that I've, I've tried there, you know, there's that warmth and compassion in the, in the eyes. And I, and I really let my shit all hang out and they were, um, just, um, compassionate, really compassionate and and knowledgeable. So again, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. And, um, I think this is a new, kind of a new wave in, uh, and therapy, and it's really exciting, um, especially for those of you guys that that live, uh, live in the boonies. Um, what did I want to... Oh, I want to read a couple of surveys. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Maljoyo. Maljoyo? Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, about his bipolar 2 with hypomania. With... Uh, so much artificial energy and brilliant ideas in my head, the best thing to do is probably to pace around the apartment and realize none of these ideas. A snapshot from his life. Under the influence of hypomania, I sit at the kitchen table and play my ukulele, convinced that I am a genius, and yet it never occurs to me to leave the house, shower, or look for a job. Oh, I think a lot of us uh, relate to that one. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Is there another kind of controversial snack food besides Pop Tarts with which you could further polarize your already divided audience? Uh, yeah, uh, mini wheats versus frosted mini wheats, corn flakes versus uh, versus frosted flakes. Uh, basically, anything that has unnecessary frosting on it. You know, I'm not, I'm not anti frosting, but really, there's, there's only two places that there should be frosting. One, a cake. And two, when I'm 80, the tips of my hair. Oh yeah. I am going to be styling in my retirement home. I'm thinking white suit, maybe. No shirt, bubble gum, slippers. Have I painted a nice picture? Cardinal Rose shares uh, about Depression. depression feels like you have the common cold all year round, but you're not contagious enough to miss work. Oh, that is a good one. Thank you for that. BPD Garbage Bitch uh, shares about having BPD, um, borderline personality disorder. I remember watching that terrible horror movie, The Strangers, and being in physical pain as Liv Tyler walks down a hallway with the intruders lurking directly behind her. It's only been in this recent year or so that I've realized that I am that intruder in my own life. Oh, that is heavy. Snapshot from her life. I once punched a hole in the thin plywood of my bathroom door and then quietly sat down to cuddle with my cat and watch an episode of Stargate like nothing happened. I'm still not sure it was me who punched the door. Thank you for sharing that. Ian shares about being a, a sex crime victim. I was molested when I was eight, and as a result, uh, and... And as a result, and type of physical contact um, is nearly impossible for me, with me freaking out and assuming the other person is trying to hurt me. Snapshot from his life. I was on a really good date with a girl one night. Things were going well until uh, she put one hand on my chest, the other on my face, and leaned in to kiss me. My heart started racing as I went into panic mode, afraid she was trying to hurt me. I think so many people never even imagine that males could have um pts uh response physical responses or emotional responses to uh physical intimacy um i, I used to think i was fucking nut job i uh, could not understand why sometimes i would just uh shut down or feel like uh, you know my skin is crawling um Monique shares about her love addiction. My love addiction feels like snorting an oxy, then getting shot in the face. Wow. That is is quite a picture. Thank you for that. Uh, Who cares? Shares about her codependency. I'm terrified you'll leave me, but I can't tell you that because you'll leave me. Awesome. And the crazy rat lady. Uh, who's a teenager, shares about her uh, anxiety. I'm constantly afraid of failing, not being good enough. Strangers, being alone, being in a crowd, and pretty much life in general. Me too. About her codependency. When you are with me, I just want you gone. When you are gone, I want to cry with how much I miss you. Me too. About her anger issues. My negative emotions all manifest as anger, and all I can do... To not become a monster is internalize and take it out on myself. Me too. Oh my God, I'm a teenage girl. Uh, A snapshot from her life. Every day after school and after work, I go straight to bed or watch Netflix until I fall asleep. I know I have too much to do, but I just can't bring myself to do anything. Even things I enjoy. If I don't go straight to bed, I go sit in the shower on the floor with the water as hot as I can take it, which I am doing now with my phone and a Ziploc baggie. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching
1: myself a lot
0: Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness Is convincing myself
2: I'm so alone
0: Why I should try to do something I hate my kids seeing me like that I just imagine killing
2: people I woke up with rats in my hair
0: They warp reality Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed
2: Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house
0: I was able to get myself out of Scientology
2: Put a gun to my mother's head and
0: I'm here with my friend, uh, Paul Goble, who I've probably known for for 20 years. Yeah. And uh, less than a, a month ago, you uh, tried to, to take your life. And yeah. I, yeah, I just want to say, uh, if you wanted to be on the show, you should have just asked. <laughs>
1: I wanted to be on the show in the worst way. And <laughs> that was the worst way I could think to get on. Uh,
0: but, but seriously, <laughs> uh, it, I'm a. So glad you survived. Thank you very much. Um, And and B, it it broke my heart to know that you were suffering uh, silently. Paul Paul and I play in a a monthly poker game with a bunch of comedians. Paul's also a comedian and a podcaster and an actor. um, Oh, I'm sure they know all that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we never, we always have our armor up, our comedy armor. Yeah. So it's not surprising that we didn't know, but. Um, honestly,
1: I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, it was, you know, I was taking 200 milligrams of Zoloft today, which is two of the biggest pills cause they don't make it in, you know, higher than a hundred and it was barely doing anything. I was stoned 24 seven and I was actually considering moving on to harder drugs, uh, because it was doing, cause my anxiety levels were just insane. I could barely leave my house without freaking out. And I still wanted to, you know, go out and do comedy and podcast. And the sad part is things have picked up for me. Like I had kind of accepted that I was in semi-retirement and I was like, well, I guess this is the second half of my story. And then I got on at midnight back in May and I went, "Oh my god, I'm back on Comedy Central after 10 years." And I and I realized I couldn't just let that opportunity pass by, so I kind of had to gear up. And so I was fight I was trying to stay <clears throat> you know in the scene and in and just doing things and at the same time I was just just ridden with anxiety and depression and uh and then on top of this you know i think i told you uh my wife and i are moving to phoenix and we're buying a house there and this is happening like in two weeks now from tonight so there's all that pressure and just one weekend i couldn't take it anymore and uh and i told her look why don't you just go without me you move to phoenix start your life without me you want to deal with me my crazy kids my insane ex wife, none of that will be a problem. You start your new life. And she was like, No, I don't want to go without you of course. So I said, hey, well here, I'll make it easy on you And uh and that was I that was when did, I tried. That was when did, I did you it. You
0: said it to her, I'll make it easy on you or when she wasn't looking, you thought I'll make it easy on you. No and I, I, did I thought
1: it. I thought that to myself. Okay. Uh because I of course if I had said I'll make it easy on you, I'll kill myself, you know, she she wouldn't have been okay with that. But the first thing I did, it was a Saturday. I just went into the garage and turned well, on the car.
0: Let me ask you this. There. Do you hate Phoenix that much?
1: <laughs>
0: well, I grew up in Tucson, so yeah. I
1: know what I'm talking about. Okay. It's pretty racist there, and I'll probably get shot anyways. But uh, So
0: you went and you turned the car on.
1: Yeah, I went in the garage, and I, I closed everything and I opened the windows and turned the car on and just sat there for a while and uh, listened to the radio. And But the problem was, It was way too hot in the garage. It got up to like 130 degrees in there. And I thought, well, if if this isn't going to kill me, I got to try something else because it's just too uncomfortable in here. So I got out of the car and uh, I went inside and and my wife was home by then. So uh, so we kind of got into it again and I just grabbed my bottle of Zoloft and went in the backyard, but she had seen that Mm. and she watched me. And she had also been talking to... Uh, our friend, Jim Bruce, who has experience with suicide, his brother killed himself and Jim was like, well, we're not going to underreact in any way. You need to call the police right now and tell them what happened. And I don't know if you know this, but when you call the police because of a suicide, the police come and, they come. and, and the ER comes. Yeah. And they don't screw around. They don't really care what you have to say. Nothing. They cuffed me, uh, and took me to the hospital. I don't understand the cu- the cuffing part, I don't you know. It was it, and because I'm, you know, I'm a large man, they had to use two sets of handcuffs, mm-hmm. which I thought one for your balls and one for your hands.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was crazy cuz I was in the bedroom and they're like, "Paul, can can you open the door? If you don't, we're going to open it ourselves." And so I'm like, oh, well, they seem reasonable. And I open the door, and they're like, all right, turn around. I was like, what the fuck? Am I all chained up here? I tried to hurt myself, not anyone else. There's no weapons anywhere, but they didn't really care what I had to say. They came and uh, threw me in the back of the ambulance. At one point, the uh, like when it was when I was in the ambulance, some guy walks up. He's an older guy. He's got a mustache, of course. He's like, uh, are you doing okay, sir? And I go, who are you? <laughs> and he goes, I'm Sergeant Whatever. And I'm like, oh, you're the guy in charge? Well, it's kind of a done deal here, right? We're g- going to the hospital. But it, it had been going on for a long time for the whole weekend. And, and I knew, I was like, well, they're going to put me on a hold now for sure. There's no way they're going to let me go home.
0: 72 hour, right? Yeah. It's like,
1: the, and like three doctors came in and said, yeah, we can't do anything. You have to be held for 72 hours. And what I thought was, well, that's going to blow but maybe i could use that time maybe that will be you know kind of a nice time to just be with my thoughts and stuff but if you've ever been in the nut house on a 72 hour hold that's that's not a relaxing place it was awful it was the worst 48 hours i've ever spent in my life so i'm guessing there wasn't an infinity pool <laughs> it was the it was like a really it was like a two-star motel with really shitty food. That's what that's what it was like. Yeah. And the guy at the end was always yelling. He would come out to eat and talk to himself. Then he'd go back to his room and scream at himself. And that was the kind of shit I had to deal with. And I have sleep apnea, so I use a CPAP machine. But they couldn't let me use it. Because you could have hung yourself. Right, because of the cord. So I said, well, we have to do something. Otherwise, I will go crazy because I can't sleep. So they had somebody babysit me for two nights. Sit in the room with me while i'm sleeping and it's a room about the size of this room and this guy's in the corner looking at his phone eating snacks while i'm trying to sleep did you have so you had your apnea machine i with did you? eventually yeah. but yeah. it wasn't you know the beds suck and it's not the most comfortable and there's noise everywhere and you know people are up and about this one guy refused to sit down i think i saw him sit down a total 10 minutes the whole time we were there he was always walking and you know and it's you just it's like it's like prison in the sense that nothing can be removed you can't hurt yourself with anything no actual mirrors so yeah that was just that alone luckily after the second day the doctor came by and said okay you seem good we'll put you in the other hospital where you can be by yourself and that was actually quite nice I had an AC in the room and the food was much better but still I was in the hospital and the only way they let me out was because I agreed to start their program the next day which was for the best and I've been doing that ever since and, and what is the program originally it's a it's what they call an IO, IOP program which intensive I, intensive outpatient right and it was uh five days a week um started at 930 and the first hour would be a check-in. Second hour would be processing, and it's a group thing. Third hour would, processing what? Like whatever your you feelings. Had. Yeah. Okay. What, like he he would basically ask my my therapist would just flat out say anything you want to process today. He would that would be in the first part. He would ask everybody. Mm-hmm. So in the second hour, you know, depending on how big the group was, we'd get into everyone's shit. Um, and then the third hour was more like a class, like they hand out a handout and talk mm-hmm. about coping skills and stuff like that. Then you go to lunch. And then, uh, and then after that is all for some reason because I was on Blue Cross, they want to add an extra hour in of therapy. So it was always some kind of, whether it was gardening or music or some shit like that to just kind of, I don't know, relax and whatever. And it was everybody there was really nice. Everybody at the hospital is great and they do. I can't recommend it enough. But eventually, I was like, I got shit to do. So I transferred to the PHP, which is only three days a week, and it's only till lunchtime. Mm. So you do the first three hours, and then you're done. So I'm doing that Monday, Tuesday, uh, Friday still. And, uh, and like I said,
0: and you're not smoking the weed and so, and you're on right. different meds.
1: Yeah. The, the first night I was there, they assessed me and, uh, you know, and that was hard too. I never thought it would be hard kicking the weed, but you know, I had to go cold Turkey and mentally I was fine, but my body clearly missed it. And that, that wasn't fun. That made it hard to sleep. But the the doctor came in and he said, let's try some Balta. And I saw a change right away. My anxiety hit the floor. Uh, I was still a little depressed, but he even said uh, the depression takes a while and then it levels off the anxiety it usually attacks it right away. So I was like, that's exactly because I thought this this can't be working so quickly. But he was like, no, that's how it works. And I said, well, this is great. Let's keep doing it. So that was the biggest thing, just the medication, because I didn't know medication could be that effective. I thought it was just all guesswork, you know,
0: a lot of it is. But um it, it's. It's great that the first thing that you that you got yeah. you got some results from,
1: yeah, and I guess now it's a li- they have better uh, they have better studies now, so they know what who what works on who, mm-hmm. and they know that what works together and what doesn't. I was mm-hmm. talking to Maria Bamford about it, and she said she's on three different medications and they have all crazy side effects that she hates, but she can live her life, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's worth it. Um, So that so the Cymbalta worked out really good. And I even asked the doctor, should it be working as well? And he said, yeah, that's why it's so expensive. That's why everybody's on it, because it's an amazing drug.
0: Um, So I want to come back to this question, but I don't want to talk about it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's remember this because I uh, have a scattered brain. (laughs) Uh, I want to know step-by-step step what that first day was like when you were doing the, the IOP. Okay. But let's rewind all the way back to uh, your childhood. What was sure. it like? Where were you raised? How many kids in your family? What was your relationship with your parents like? What was their right. relationship to each other like? Um, well, it was a t- it was a
1: fairly typical home uh when i was a kid we lived in flint michigan infamous now for being a complete shithole um and your dad uh put in the pipes right my dad was a sewer repair man he was like "Lead's the future son uh but he uh well he was actually uh he had a bunch of different jobs but for a while he he had his own business but my dad smoked pot my entire life growing up which is i found out was unique because he wasn't a hippie he was you know he was an old man like he could have been in the war if he wasn't the only surviving male in his family He could have gone to Vietnam, but he got cancer. I guess shortly after I was born. I don't remember it he got the nut cancer and uh, He was doing cobalt treatments which apparently they don't even do anymore and it was so painful that his sister my aunt who was ten years younger than him and a hippie said I'll get you some weed to help and he just never stopped but that was partially because his father who I never knew was a raging alcoholic and he beat him beat uh, his mom beat his stepmom until my dad the way he tells it was old enough to step in and put a stop to it so my dad never drank because of that but he did get high uh, pretty much 24 7 I used to work with him when he Did was, He try to hide it from you as a kid, not even close, didn't yeah. even care. He was the dad and he made the money and you know, growing up, we sat in the smoking section in every restaurant because he smoked cigarettes too, you know, even though he was the only one in the family who smoked, we sat in the smoking section so he could yeah. smoke afterwards. But my house always reeked of weed. Um, so I knew this, I knew the smell right away. So I wasn't interested when I was a kid because of that. So that was gr- the, that was what it was like growing up. And it was me, him, my brother, and my mom. So, you know, my mom was the only woman in the family. So I didn't, I wasn't really that, uh, sensitive to women's issues or even gave a fuck about what mm-hmm. women went through or cared. So I grew up with that attitude as well. And then the marriage fell, we moved to Arizona. Uh, When I was like a teenager and uh, their marriage fell apart, there was a lot of fighting. Give me,
0: give me uh, before we get to that, give me some uh, moments from uh, your family Um, that you think kind of highlight what your experience was like or what they are like or what you were like.
1: Well, I remember specifically times when my mom would be upset And, you know, be sitting in a chair crying or weeping about something. And I remember looking around, not, I didn't necessarily do this actively, but nobody seemed to care. Nobody in the family seemed to want to do anything about it. And it seemed to me like this is her problem. She's upset about something. My dad's not doing anything. My older brother's not doing anything. So what can I do? She just needs to get over it. So that was like a prevailing attitude in our house. And that's kind of, that was a, uh, that was a big impression on me and how I like. Talk to women and de- dealt with women and stuff. So that, that's a big memory that I had. or your dad was a shut down dude, man. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there was a guy, the guy who lived across the street from us in, in Michigan was a Vietnam vet who, uh, had his, uh, eye blown off while he was loading dynamite into a truck. So he got, A, he got discharged, but all, but B, he got a shitload of money from the government because mm-hmm. he couldn't work. He was blind. So he lived in this big ass house. He even, he had so much money. He bought a car. He was blind, but he bought a oh. car. <laughs> That's how much he money he was blind he in had. both eyes. Yeah. Well, cause the other one eye was gone completely yes. and the other one was just useless. Uh, so, but of course he smoked pot cause he was a wounded Vietnam vet. So he would walk across the street, uh, with his seeing eye dog and him and my dad would get high all the time down in the basement, but I thought like like I said he didn't hide it so it wasn't like we were ashamed there was anything to be ashamed about and even like him and that guy his name was Jerry they had a great relationship they used to do a magic act together And it was like, hey, it's Jerry and Terry. That was their names, (laughs) Jerry and Terry. And because he was blind, it was like, the blind magician. We love it. And, like, my dad would go, okay, does everybody see this card? And Jerry would go, no, I can't see it. And (laughs) he'd hold it up to his face. All right, I got it. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Self-deprecating blind guy. So that was all perfectly normal to me that, you know, it, you just did what you wanted because at the same time, he paid all his bills. He paid the mortgage on our house. He, uh, uh, I found out later he had cheated on my mom a few times, but, uh, it wasn't like he was bringing girls around or, you know, that wasn't a big deal. He was a very providing father, you know, uh, and he raised me at least not to, not to, you know, rob banks and deal drugs and any of that shit. I never did it. I never did that stuff mainly because I didn't, I wasn't interested. There was no, uh, it wasn't any kind of mystique about that so so that was that I realized that it was kind of weird that I I grew up basically thinking well you can smoke pot your whole life and be perfectly fine my dad did so but the truth is he eventually got cancer a second time and it did kill him so uh, you know smoking kills you regardless of what you're smoking remember that
0: what give me some moments between you and your dad and you and your mom
1: um, one particular moment that I was reminded of recently, I was, uh, I was going shopping with my mom. We were going grocery shopping and I was driving cause I was 16 or 17 and, uh, we're driving to the grocery store and I said something like, uh, you know, dad said we needed to get some of whatever, some grapes or something. And she goes, well, if he said, then I guess we better do it. Cause they had been fighting mm-hmm. and she was being passive aggressive and, and I I guess I was fed up because of all the fighting and stuff. And I pulled over and I said, listen, if you guys are fighting, this is between you, but I don't want to deal with it. And don't take it out on me, which, of course, made her burst out into tears. And I'm sorry, you're right. You shouldn't have to deal with this. But that was the end of it when, you know, I should have said, OK, let's try to work this out. Let's all we're all family here. Let's get through this together. But. Like I said, I was sixteen or seventeen, so I was completely self consumed i couldn 't have cared less about her problems but that 's kind of that 's a perfect example of the way it was, especially when I was a teenager so it was every man for himself it really was, including my mom, like when they finally split, it was my mom who left uh i don 't know if it was because she had to get out or she wanted to be the first one to leave, but yeah, it really was. My brother had moved out by then. But it, at the time, but looking around being younger and being able to, you know, like say, well, I'm, I'm only 17. I can't move Mm -hmm. out yet. And watching this, I was, all I could think was, man, these guys are fucked up. Look how sad and stupid they all are. I'm never going to be like that. (laughs) And, you know, and the great irony is eventually I got married and had two daughters and it was the opposite of my family growing up. I was, you know, my dad died and my mom's still alive. I'm, a wash in estrogen you know 24 7 and I had to it took a long time but I had to eventually stop being a horrible you know uh, man and listen to what my daughters and my wife had to say but it still wasn't enough because my first marriage failed too so but I, as far as my dad memories with my dad we used to work together he, he, he owned his own business in Arizona fixing uh, appliances so every weekend even into college I would go work with him And we'd ride around in his truck and sometimes he'd get high while we were riding around. And then (laughs) I remember we were eating lunch somewhere at like a Taco Bell or something. And there was like this Mexican chick working the counter and we're sitting down eating. And my dad's like, God damn it man, something about Mexican chicks just turns me on. But I wanted to go, no, do not say that to me. But I knew he was just like, I don't know, he was back on the market. And so he was just looking at women like that. And so he would, he it got to a point where he was sharing shit with me that I didn't want him to share with me. And I had no interest in like taking over his business or working with him or anything. And I made that clear. He knew that wasn't going
0: to happen. So it's like the things you wanted them to be close around, they weren't close to you about. Mm. And the things you wanted them to keep at a distance, they were close to you about.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I guess it was, you know, partly because I was, you know, sort of the black sheep of my family in the sense that I was artistic and I played an instrument and I sang and I acted and I did all that shit in high school that they really only dabbled in. But not only was I passionate about it, I was pretty good at it. So they came and saw my plays and all that shit, but they really had no connection. I remember one time in college, I was doing comedy at Laughs in Tucson I was, uh, but it was at the open mic where we all went and my dad showed up to see another guy. No, I swear to God. No. Yes. this guy, Cam Martin, who, uh, who I knew when I was a kid in Michigan, he and his mom had moved to Tucson and he was doing comedy and his mom came every Tuesday night to see him. And one night my dad came with her. And I didn't even know it. And I got on stage and went, hey, everybody, my dad's here. But he's not here to see me, so it's cool. <laughs> and I thought, ah, oh, this is hilarious. But, of course, that's really Tragic, Right. It's really sad. So it was like that. That's how it was like with us. He used to see me do plays and stuff, but it was almost like he was embarrassed to give his opinion or 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 weigh in on it because that that wasn't his world. And same with my brother and same with my mom. So I was kind of, you know, on my own in that world. And like you said, I wanted them to maybe be involved and reach out but they didn't instead i just heard about all the other shit and the guys my mom dated and meeting them and oh he's not he turns out to be a loser and
0: the oh the guys your mom was dating after she left your right father. right okay. yeah like
1: they're trying to you so know. she
0: would overshare about her they, romantic life absolutely and they both would
1: uh just like, you know, go, you know, I'm still living with my dad. It, for a while, it was just me and him. So g- women he was dating would come over. They would get high. Friends would come over. They would get high. I remember one time this friend of his who was a legit drug dealer came over. And my dad was sick. He had just taken days off work. Uh And I saw the guy say, well, I guess you're not interested in this, huh? And he pulls out some Coke. And my dad's like, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm so sick. But that means that they've done coke together they've they've been hanging out doing coke previous to this and again I couldn't really judge him for it because the whole time I thought well he's not in jail you know no. we're not on the street we uh you know we have a car he owns his own business obviously mm-hmm. it, this is working and, uh, you know, I'm sure I, I didn't, I've never asked, but I'm sure there's something horrible like he was years behind on his mortgage or some shit like that, that I don't know about. And I don't want to know, but it all seemed perfectly normal to me. So any kind of weirdness as I was growing up, I would, you know, when I became an adult, I was just like, yeah, that's not so weird. You know, that's, yeah, that's not so weird. It's totally normal compared to my family.
0: What were your thoughts about yourself uh, growing
1: up? Um, well, I was a fat little kid, uh, much like I'm, uh, a fat adult. So I got bullied a lot when I was a kid and I fought that with humor, like, like you do. So, uh, I was always the kid who was trying to make people laugh. So they would lay off me and I had close friends and stuff who, uh, you know, we made each other laugh, but I was never the jock. And, you know, that was my brother's thing. He was the athlete and uh, he was much smarter than me, so and he was older or younger yeah, he was old he was like four years older than me, and um, he got better grades, and he was uh, him and my dad would watch sports together, they connected over that i couldn 't stand it watching sports on tv i still don 't like watching sports on TV, mm-hmm. uh, so I hated that, so I had to basically you know try to be different by being funny or learning to play an instrument. Or any of that stuff so that's what who i thought i was i was different from my family but i i always thought of myself as special because i was some sort of artist or comedian or whatever so in
0: a lot of ways it gave you a sense of self that kind of kept you from being you know just completely uh, in despair
1: yeah and also i wanted to distance myself from my parents background you know they were they grew up in in flint they both grew up in flint michigan uh, you know, uh, poor side of town. My dad was a full-on criminal. He was like Fonzie, but the bad version. <laughs> Like he was on, uh, he uh, He would hurt the jukebox. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He wouldn't punch it because to make it playing, he would smash it to pieces to stop it from playing. That's what my dad did. Here's a great story about my, that my dad told me once, one time him and a bunch of his idiot friends went out causing trouble and they saw some kid from school and they basically rolled him. They basically scared the shit out of him and stole all his money. Well, he went and told his dad, of course. His dad called the cops. The cops went and picked them all up. One of the kids that they picked up had a knife on him. So they all got arrested for armed robbery. Every single one of those kids got picked up by their parents, except my dad. His dad said, go ahead, throw him in jail. If if he's guilty, he's guilty. And he spent like a month in a youth detention facility in Flint, Michigan. And, you know, I, I, I only heard this story from him, but that's the kind of kid he was. He was not a good guy and he would, he got kicked out of school. He got his GED cause he eventually got kicked out of school and couldn't go back. So again, I was like, well, that's not me. I'm doing great compared to that. But I mainly didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to get high. I didn't want to go to jail. I didn't want to do any of that crap, especially, you know, growing up in Flint, um, but it was weird because I went to an inner city school that was made that was, you know, probably 60, 70 percent black. It was the kind of school where you didn't go to the bathroom in between classes, you know, because you would always get hassled if you were a white kid. And that was only in seventh grade. And then we moved to Arizona and there was one black kid in my school in Arizona. Ev meekum was the governor who was a famous racist. And he personally said vetoed. Martin Luther King holiday because all the white people who supported him wanted him to. So it's, I mean, it's still pretty racist, but back then, Oh, it was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. So I didn't want to be a part of my parents growing up. I didn't want to be a part of their childhood. I didn't want to be a part of what my brother did. Cause he, when we moved, he only he had like a year left in school, and he didn't like it. And he started getting high and hanging out with these idiots, listening to Rush all day. That was hey like, hey I'm, hey. I'm not saying listening to Rush is a bad thing, but that's not a career choice listening to Rush <laughs> all day, unless you're a DJ on WRSH. <laughs> but I didn't want to be any of those guys. And you know when my brother graduated and went to college, he flunked out because it was too hard. It was much harder than he than he thought it was going to be. So I was like, "Well, I guess it's up to me." And you know, I got a scholarship, and I it took me five years, but I graduated. And what I, was your scholarship in? It was uh, a fine arts scholarship. It was just it was just a fee waiver, I, I a tuition waiver. So it was it still you know it wasn't completely free, but I was living at home, and uh, you know as long as I didn't have to pay tuition, it was great. And I got. Tuition for four out of five of those years, because
0: they took it away one year. Oh, is this where you met Graham? Yeah, at okay. University of Arizona, yeah. Okay. Graham Elwood, who is uh, a mutual friend of ours, guest of the show, and one of the uh, creators of the L.A. Podfest.
1: Right, comedy film nerds. Yeah, Yeah, that's where I met Graham. We started doing comedy together there. We hated each other when we met each other. But he used to call me Mr. Comedy, sarcastically. And I used to call him that frat boy guy, <laughs> and not knowing he was never in a fraternity. But yeah. we had this similar upbringing that we were both actually from lower middle class families, uh, grew up in like, you know, the Midwest, him in Chicago, Milwaukee, and me in Michigan. So we had a lot in common. But yeah, I spent so much of my life trying to distance myself from my, my dad's shitty childhood and my mom's she was raised by a baptist preacher and had seven brothers and sisters i didn't want any part of that life so i was just trying to you know be myself and think well maybe i can be an actor and and you know be creative and and do that so that's what i had that's what i did and i mean it worked out to some extent but the main thing was i was running
0: away from what they had to, to offer and so- after college moved to chicago so now that's the outside kind of stuff—the mm-hmm. you know logistics of all that. Yeah. Talk about like inside you and your feelings, and your view of yourself and your view of the world, starting from, you know, high school, on. Um. Or, or even when you were a kid. Well, yeah. Well, you know, you, go, go you, you mentioned that you felt good about yourself because of art, but yeah, what I've got to imagine there were other negative voices in your head. Yeah, because. What did they say? It really started in college because in high
1: school, I was, you know, I was voted funniest senior boy in high school. So it doesn't get much better than that. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like a big, a big shot in the fucking Flowing Wells High School. Um, And that's where I met Jim Bruce, uh, who was like the funniest person I ever met, but he had. He had zero, uh, charisma. Jim was the guy who would literally lean over and whisper shit in my ear. And then I would say it out loud. So that was a relationship we had. But then it was in college when I realized, Oh, all these people are very talented and they're coming from all over and some of, and like math, you know, uh, grad students and Mm -hmm. guys getting their doctorate. I was just always second guessing myself and feeling inadequate around the crew guys and around the better actors. I had no game. I didn't know what I was doing with women, you know. Uh, The summer after I graduated, I wasn't sure what I was going to do because I knew I couldn't afford college. And I thought, and my parents were still married at the time, so I didn't qualify for any kind of financial aid. And I thought, well, I'll apply for a scholarship, but that's really a long shot. So I guess I'll just see what happens. And, you know, if the fall rolls around and I don't have anything to do, I'll just work with my dad all year and see what happens. And one day, me and Jim and a couple other guys who I was hanging out with that summer, we were at my house, and I was looking through the mail, and I get a letter. and It says, you have a fee waiver for four years. I was like, this is awesome. And uh, and I'm like, check it out, guys, scholarship. And they're all like, way to go. And my dad walks in from work, you know, in his work shirt and everything. And I go, Dad, check this out. I just got a tuition waiver to the U of A. And he goes, that's great. Help me move this washer. I'm not kidding. And it became like a running joke among me and my friends. You can ask Jim. And it was like, Dad, I just cured cancer. Uh-huh. Help me unscrew this dryer. And it, Do you was, remember what you felt in that moment? Well, they all laughed was the right. funny thing. All my friends thought it was the funniest thing ever. So I had to laugh too. And, I, and what I felt was I have to find this funny. If I don't find this funny, my only other choice is... I have to face the realization that I will never impress him. There's really nothing I can do to make him go, I'm really proud of you, son. And because I mean, he, he didn't graduate high school. He got his GED and here I am getting a scholarship to a state school, not a community college. And he did, he said nothing, just great. That was all he could say. But you know, work oh. is work. And at the time, I convinced myself, oh, well, he's just a pragmatic guy. He's a real world guy. But honestly, I i was just fooling myself. I had to say all that stuff because I thought, geez, there's nothing I can ever do to impress him. And that might have been the last time I tried, honestly. You know, he came to see me in shows in college and stuff like that. But. I felt like he, he didn't know enough about what I was doing to feel comfortable saying, ah,
0: oh, good job. Right. Or, You're did you, it. in that, in that moment when he, when he said that, what did you, what emotions did you feel? It was
1: a lot of emotions because, I mean, first of all, they all laughed. And so I was forced to realize that's kind of funny in a tragic, mm. you know, in a tragic way or just like if you saw that on a sitcom, you'd probably laugh. And they all laughed because it was happening to me and not them. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of them were going to college, not at the time. A couple of them were still in high school. Jim certainly wasn't going to college at the time, so they were like, "Haha, and also I think I, probably one or two of them, maybe all of them thought, "Whoa, that's weird. We better laugh to make right. this not weird, you know, but i thought I honestly thought, okay, well, later on he'll say something when it's just me and him mm-hmm. and it never happened, and I felt like. Not like, boy, I can't do anything to please him, but more like, boy, he just really is doesn't give a fuck. He's he's so he, it was it, what I thought was he has so much going on, uh, owning his own business, trying to pay for this house, dealing with right. my mom, right. his ex-wife,
0: that he just didn't have time right. for me. That's what you were thinking. Yes. What were you feeling? I felt I, I guess the
1: feeling was of abandonment. I felt like, uh, you know, I'm. This is really my step into adulthood, and I want your blessing. And it was more like, okay, you know, like kicking me out the door. It was. Uh, I mean, he he may have been feeling actual relief at that. Uh, which would have, that would have even been better if he went, Oh, thank God you're going to college. That would have been a nice feeling. But I think honestly, he was like, maybe he was embarrassed, but my feeling was just, Oh, I guess I'm done here. Uh, you know, I'll come here I'll sleep here cause it's free and I'll eat food here. But, uh, I don't really don't have a place anymore. And the family was pretty much. You know, dispersed any, by that point, anyways.
0: Any other feelings other than the the feeling of of abandonment? And, I, and I'm sorry to be all you know, <laughs> like Mister. Keep bringing it back there, but yeah, I'm used I to know one story. of the things that for the first forty years of my life, I couldn't even identify what emotions I was feeling, and I would just talk about what I was thinking, and yeah, it kept yeah. me so um in the dark. And so I, I like to, when somebody's uh, sharing their story, I'm curious to know what it, what it is that they're, well, that they're actu- were actually feeling. Yeah, because, you know, I spent a lot of time
1: with friends who were like me, didn't do drugs. We would play D&D and stay up all night playing Monopoly and drive around to different, you know, Circle K's and play video games. Kind of a you know nerdy loser existence but we were so tight that we could talk to each other about our feelings in, in such a way that that young men would more just about hey man when you make fun of me for my small dick it really makes me mad or whatever mm-hmm. um, and we would discuss girls and 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 you know the future and stuff but we weren't afraid to share our feelings with each other when I went to college and was not around those guys so much anymore uh It it really was a a, at that point I shut down because I didn't want to share my feelings or who I really was with all these strangers in college who were clearly so much smarter and and uh, you know came from rich families and came from New York and places like that I couldn't reveal that I was a, a, a hillbilly or didn't have any feelings and then. You know, my family, like I said, my family was dispersed, so I couldn't share with them. Uh, you know, I would come home and just do my homework and go to bed and get up. And so there was nothing to share with my family, too. And it was doubly sad because I could tell that there were times when my dad wanted to bond with me or share with me later on about, like, share his feelings about being lonely or uh, getting sick or whatever. One time he had gout and his fucking hands swelled up like a baseball glove, and I wanted to say, does this make you feel old that you have gout? Because I, I had a feeling that it did. It would make me feel old that I got gout and my mm. hand swelled up. I would be t- facing my own mortality. But I didn't, you know, I didn't want to have him talk about that. And he probably didn't want to talk about
0: it. It's so hard to break the ice yeah. when it's a relationship where that's never been, yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, and I was still, I still was resentful and angry at my mom for things that I thought she had done.
0: For Uh, instance.
1: Well, just like leaving my dad and and being crazy, being too crazy to live with. Yeah, you know. uh,
0: By that, you mean too emotional?
1: Yeah. Being, yeah, just being the crazy.
0: Compared to your your dad, she she
1: was. Anything, yeah. Any emotion at all. That was the problem. Yeah. She would, she would, you know, lose her shit and throw plates and stuff. Oh, okay. Well, that's a little, that's a little much. That, that didn't happen on the, on the regular. But when they got in fights, she was, she was the one who was loud and all over while my dad was the one who kept his shit. And I know it's because he was so afraid that he was going to hit her, you know and be his dad. He didn't want to do that. But like you said, compared to him, you know of course she was crazy. Mm-hmm. And I found out later on that she actually was on in the nut house for a while. There was a point where she tried to kill herself, and she went uh, on a 72-hour hold, and then after 72 hours, someone told her, "You know, you can sign yourself out, right?" And she did. She signed herself out and walked out the door. You know this was in the uh, 60s early Mm -hmm. 60s, maybe so things were different then but you know, there was all these signs about you know mental health starting with my Grandfather, you know and his addiction and then my dad's addiction and his mental health and my mom and and I thought well That's them. That's not me. That's never gonna be
0: a problem for me So so when did you begin to realize something's something's going on with me? That's not getting better it started
1: honestly um in my first marriage, when my kids were about four and six, maybe, uh, you know, I had had some success, uh, you know, being on TV and stuff, and we bought uh, a house. And, uh, you know, we had two kids and it was the stress of having two young babies in the house and paying a mortgage and the bills and all this stuff. And then, you know, me being out of work and in work. And then the strike happened. Do you remember how devastating mm. that was for many people? And and it was really hard. And And my wife at the time, Jill, said, you need to go on some medication. And I went, how dare you? I refuse. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to take medication. And she said, we should also go to therapy. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to marriage counseling like my parents. And in the time, eventually I did. And in the time, to- but in the time it took me to get there to realize I needed that, I spent that entire time ruining my marriage, being, uh, you know, verbally and emotionally abusive, uh, losing my temper with my kids. Basically making my wife fall out of love with me to the point where eventually I was I was taking medication I went to see a doctor and he prescribed Zoloft, which worked really well for a while and that we went to marriage counseling but it became very clear that she just didn't want to be married to me anymore and I was trying hard to pull it together. So once again, I was like, I'm doing everything here I want this to work but I couldn't realize that it was just too late and I couldn't take responsibility for that. So that's when I first realized there was a problem. But the, unfortunately, I couldn't address it because I was too concerned trying to save my marriage. And then after it ended, I was too concerned trying to cope with being single for the first time in 25 years. Uh, or being a single dad, which really is a nightmare. Uh, uh, if you know any guys who are single dads, you need to cut them a break. Uh, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in North Hollywood with my kids.
0: Why is being a single dad worse than being a single mom, or you just don't know the experience of being a single mom, so you can't well, compare it? Well, uh, be- obviously I don't know that experience,
1: but what I did notice is that people cut single moms a break almost 100% of the time. Even if they see a mom and a baby who, you know, you see a mom and a baby at a park, you immediately keep an eye on them, right? Mm-hmm. You see a dad and a baby at the park, you ask, is this your kid? You know, cause he, cause it, I might have kidnapped that kid. Really? People do that? Yeah. I used to go, I used to take my kids to auditions because I had to. And sometimes they were babies. I'm walking in with a car seat and I'm like, uh, I would sit there with the kid next to me and someone would go, whose baby is this? I'm sitting right next to
0: my baby and someone
1: would go, whose baby is this? I'm like, it's mine. Is it a problem? He's like, oh, no, no. I was just looking for the mom.
0: They're, yeah, you know I mean? they're not used to seeing a, a man out with a baby, so. Exactly,
1: yeah. and so then their second thought is, oh, her mom's working or whatever, and mm-hmm. I'm like, no, it's just me and them. It's just me and my kids, man. It's difficult. And like I said, I lived in a one bedroom apartment with them. We shared a bedroom. You know, luckily it worked out as long as it could, but that wasn't healthy. When we first moved in our bedroom, I had, all I had was my bed and a futon. I would put them to bed in my bed, stay up and work or do whatever. Then I would get them out of my bed and put them on the futon. And then I'd get up in the morning and take them to school. And that was our life for a good three, four months. So being a single dad, it's basically just you don't get the sympathy that single moms get. And, and I'm not saying they don't deserve that sympathy. It's tough being a single mom, too. But people just assume, oh, his wife or his ex-wife probably does the lion's share of the work. I but
0: see. I see.
1: That's just, that's just not true. And especially when even if you have your kids, it's like you spend so much time trying to make up for shit even that time is is sometimes a drag, uh, and I know it affected them you know they 're teenagers now do you feel like 18. you
0: caused a lot of damage in them
1: mm, absolutely, partly because I was so ill equipped to deal with uh, you know girls becoming women. And so I just didn't know what I was doing and I thought I knew everything, but I didn't. I could have easily read a book on the subject, you know, and didn't bother. But also partly because of all of the awful things I said about their mom. And I'm not saying she didn't do awful things and, and uh you know, and she wasn't a nightmare of an ex-wife, but they didn't need to be involved in
0: that. No, you know, no, that's they, a-
1: they, they weren't a part of that. Have so, you ever apologized to them for that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah Since how, then, how, I have.
0: How did they take that?
1: Um Well, you know, they're 17 and 15 now. So, of course, they're self-consumed. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they kind of are like, okay, thanks.
0: You know, they don't really, like, just... They just want to minimize their interactions yeah. with you.
1: Like, yeah. just two days ago, I said to my daughter, I was like, listen, you know, I have... I just found out today that the history of mental illness and addiction in my family is part of the reason why I am in the situation I am today. And it's one of the, and and it's why you do drugs and why, why you act out as well. It's not all your fault. It's partly physiological and I want to apologize for not giving you a heads up because I could have easily sat them down and said, listen, grandpa was an alcoholic, my dad smoked weed, my mom was uh, mentally unstable. Your mom, not so much. Also, their mom was a hoarder, like literally a crazy hoarder. So, you know, there's plenty of mental illness in our background, but never once did I say, so if you feel like you're going crazy, it's not all your fault. Mm. Uh, you know, you can come to me. And that that's something I deeply regret because they both have had problems with drugs, Uh, you know. I said to both of them, but promise me that if you ever have kids, you will tell them all these stories and you will not make the same mistakes I make because I I hope I'm around when I have grandkids. But I would love it if they were the first generation not to suffer, you know, mm-hmm. from this illness, because the bottom line is, as you know, the worst the worst part about it was that we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. We kept it all quiet. We swept everything under the rug. You know, in the seventies, my dad smoking pot—that was a big deal. Cops could have came in and you know arrested him. Uh, so we had to keep that quiet. You know, and I don't want anybody to know my mom's crazy, so we had to keep that quiet. My dad didn't want to talk about his alcoholic, abusive dad, so we kept that quiet. But that's all a mistake. You know, you can't, you can't sweep that shit under the rug. And-
0: but I have to say, it made for a nice, quiet neighborhood. <laughs> and that increased property values.
1: Absolutely. Yo, you go back to our neighborhood uh- in
0: Flint, gorgeous. <laughs> so let's go to uh, the morning of the intensive outpatient program and, okay. and give me step-by-step step the different things.
1: Okay. So just And so how that-
0: you reacted and felt and what your preconceived notions of them okay. were. Okay.
1: So while I was in under the hold and, you know, under lock and key, I didn't want to see anybody. Brooke came to visit me once, which was nice.
0: We tried to see you, but. Yeah, I know. Sh- yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and you, and, and I didn't have, you can't have anything with a camera in there. Mm-hmm. So that means no phones, iPads, computers, anything. So there's only uh, a phone on the wall that you can call people. And I would call my voicemail and you left a message and a couple other people. So that was nice. But then when I got out and I was in the other thing, I just wanted to be by myself. So I didn't do any kind of therapy. They would always come around and go, we got a group going on. And I'd say no, because um, I just wanted to get the hell out. But because I agreed the next day I would do it, I had to do it. So uh, my wife comes and gets me and we go home and I'm all ready the next day. And first of all, this it's Los Encinas is the name of the hospital, Aurora Los Encinas. They provide a ride to, the, to and from the hospital which is great because they don't want you to have an excuse not to go. So they pick me up at Bob Hope Park, drive me out to Pasadena in this van. Uh, Now, is
0: Dolores Hope with you?
1: (laughs) No, but Betty Ford was, which is weird. She's still on the sauce. Uh, But uh, then we get there, and um, the first hour, you go into a group. And sometimes it was just me. Sometimes it was eight other people. But the great thing is everyone's there for a reason and sometimes very different because they do a they do a a drug and alcohol program there too. So some people are there to dry out or to get over drugs. A lot of young people are in there mm-hmm. cuz their parents make them go. They say, you know, if you want to live in this house, you go to mm-hmm. therapy, that kind of shit. So you got people there for different reasons. Some people are there because they want to get better. Some people are there because they have to get better. Some people are there because they're full-on crazy. Like you'll be in a group and someone will be talking about something and you're nodding. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, that doesn't happen. You're talking about things that aren't real. But you can't go, hey, you're nuts. That's not real because it's real to them. And sometimes they say, and I know that's not real. Like they're, they they mm-hmm. acknowledge that it, they're imagining it. So, so that's strange. But every, but the good thing is, everyone's there for a reason, and you, it it's, it it doesn't make sense to feel self conscious or to hold things back, because I know I'm not the sickest person there. Uh, I may be the second sickest, yeah. but I'm probably not. And the even
0: sickest. if you were the sickest, you know that's okay.
1: Yeah, that's because okay. it's a hospital. Every, yeah. literally, if you're not on staff there, you're there because you're sick. So, uh, so it, that's really freeing. Hmm. Because there are no mistakes, you know, and, and the great thing was this guy, Brian was my therapist, you know, the check in was always the same. And the routine is really, uh, is very helpful. He would say, okay, on a scale from one to 10, how's your anxiety? Uh, And how's your depression? Any risky behavior? Are you drug free? Do you have any physical pain? Any thoughts of homicide or suicide? Uh, Anything you'd like to process? And he would go, great. And he'd make all these notes and then he'd move on to the next person. And my first thought was like, no, I'm great. Just let's move on. Nothing to talk about. But after a while, and this was like after the the first day, I realized if I'm going to come here every day, I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make use of it. First of all, I'm paying for it every for everyone who has insurance is paying for it but also mm. I'm paying a huge copay you know it's not like a 10 dollar doctor visit you know hospitals are really fucking expensive so I thought I'm going to get my I'm going to get my money's worth here so I would always take the opportunity even if it was a small thing I said even if it's a small thing I'm going to bring it up but
0: so you were saved by frugality that's beautiful,
1: <laughs> but the truth is there are no small things when it comes to addiction and mental health because no. because one little thing can be a huge trigger, and uh, and if you don't know how to cope with it or just you know or just move on from it until you can talk about it, it can, it can snowball. Yeah, it can fuck up your whole life. And there was a guy in there; he's still there, uh, who was there for alcoholism. He's he's like in his sixties. He's he's an actor. Um, but he like, he has his great life. He lives in Del Mar, a nice house, nice wife. But his wife said, you know what? I think you're drinking too much wine because he started falling down and like, just like slurring words. And he was drinking two, three bottles a day, but it was wine. You know, he wasn't a, a hobo. He wasn't drinking, you know, moonshine. He's a 60 year old retired man living in Del Mar, but he's there because he has a problem. And it really... I mean, I'm sure this is the point, but it really puts things in perspective because there are young people there who remind me of my daughters. There are, you know, black people, Asian, there's a, you know, there are rape victims there, uh, you know, alcoholics, math addicts
0: and all economic, socioeconomic classes, retired,
1: rich people, homeless, young people. There was a guy there who was my age, but was a skater boy, you know, dressed in skater clothes every day. He acted like he was 17, but he's our age. Uh, And he was living in a sober living house Mm -hmm. and he said he hated it, but he couldn't afford anything else. I was like, dude, you know, and he didn't have a car or anything. So
0: did you feel less alone then by seeing how wide a swath mental illness and addiction?
1: Absolutely. And I, and I knew that already, but I had kind of forgotten it. I was reminded of that, Mm -hmm. that I'm not alone here. And you know, the staff, was amazing so that was a huge help but also that everyone was kind of like oh, we're all here to get help and we're all here to get better and i found that because we all had different problems and because we were all from different backgrounds and stuff that i could i had maybe an insight to what these guys said and vice versa one day i was talking about a lot of the guilt i have and this has led to my my depression everything also about you know guilt about the way i've treated women in life and just the general white male cisgendered guilt that guys like you and me carry around when we, you know, when a, a cop pulls up next to us and sees that we're an old white man and then drives away mm-hmm. to pull over a black guy. I feel bad. I feel like, why? I can't do drugs. I can't be driving drunk. Why don't you pull me over instead of the black guy you're going to pull over? So I have a lot of guilt about that. And I brought it up and, and one of the guys was like, what is that sis? What does that mean? And he had never heard the term before. Mm. And so I was like, oh, I guess this is something I can share. You know, whereas, uh, you know, people who don't have kids, they want to hear all my kids' stories. Whereas I want to hear all their stories about not having kids and the pain of growing up childless. Like one day I said to to this guy, I was like, you know, you don't have kids, right? And you probably hear my stories about when I complain about my kids and think it's great. And he goes, yeah, we can't have kids. And I went, you see? Mm -hmm. That... There are people who have tried to kill themselves because they can't have children. And that seems great to me, but that's a heartbreak obviously. And you know, you, you look, your perspective changes so much when you look through someone else's eyes and you, you hear their experiences, you know, no matter how drastically different it is, it, it really helps to, to see, you know, just that everyone has problems. And the best part is a lot of, you know, Like, you know, a lot of the therapists there are, you know, recovered alcoholics or Mm -hmm. whatever. So, so they get it. They all get it. It's uh, everybody understands what's up there. The the only bad part is it's a huge hospital. So shit falls through the cracks. Sometimes they called in a prescription for me once and I went to pick it up and they were like, no, nothing here for Paul Gobel. Do you go by Robert ever? And I'm like, What? They go, wait, is someone in here for Robert Goble on your birthday? I go, Bolton. They're like, yeah. I go, well, that's obviously mine. So just give it to me. And so we had a big meeting the next day at the hospital. And I said, uh, they're like, any problems? We're, you know, anyone open it up? And I said, well, this isn't a big deal. But, you know, someone called in a prescription for me the other day. And it took a while to get it because it was for Robert Goble. And the woman's like, oh, okay, thanks, Paul. And I go, yeah, everybody, my name's Paul. I don't go by Bob, Bobby. It's, I don't know where they got Robert from, but that's my point. Because I'm sure some people thought, "Why well, is he?" You know, so he said Robert instead of Bob. Big deal. But then my therapist goes, or the lady goes, "But you did get your prescription right." And I go, "Yeah, everything worked out." And then my therapist goes, did Robert get his prescription? And I go, no. And Robert was pissed. You should have seen him, man. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is great because I'm being honest about everything and I'm complaining. But at the same time, I feel good enough about it that I can joke about it. And I have perspective, you know, uh, there's a there's a time when... My prescription not being ready would have been the fucking end. I would have raised my voice. I would have insulted all the people behind the counter. I would have made sure everybody at CVS knew that I was being wronged, you know? I need this medicine, goddammit, but
0: it wasn't that big a deal. And- I need this medicine, mom and dad. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. I mean, Dan, <laughs> the pharmacist. So, t- so uh, give me, uh, paint a little picture for me of that day i I feel like i got the background now of the the other people there Mm. talk talk about internally what went on that first day
1: um well like i said i was really comforted by the structure Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and uh uh you know answering the questions and uh and the free association and there's always that awkward moment when you know he says well who would like to start but because i hate the awkward moment so much i just always start <laughs> if i and i feel sometimes i feel like i'm you know oversharing or taking over the the meeting but if no someone's got to go first so if that means i talk a little longer then okay then you go first next time and you can talk longer so we would do that in the first meeting and it would be all On paper, literally, it'd be Mm -hmm. all on paper in front of our therapist. So, we take a break, we come back, and he says, okay, who wants to start? And it's great because I've already said, yes, this thing happened to me, and I'd like to process it. So, I don't have to feel bad about bringing it up or guilty or embarrassed Mm -hmm. because I already said it. So, now it's like, well, what else can I do but talk about it and get through it? And it's not like, I mean, we've all been to therapists who just kind of sit and nod Mm-hmm. And, uh, for a while I was down with that. I liked that therapist cause it was just the talking, but they don't help a whole lot. And so you, you tell your story or what happened to you or your feelings or whatever. And then the therapists, they don't just go, mm-hmm, uh-huh, how do you feel? You know, they get up in front of a whiteboard and go, okay, so let's look at this. Like, here's the conscious, here's the subconscious, here's the aggressive, the passive aggressive. And they, they basically show you. You know this is how the brain works, and you know you can 't know certain things and you can 't worry about that, but in the meantime, you have to do this and, the, and and you have to cope with it, otherwise losing it i I lost my shit in a the movie theater the other uh, the other day because this guy was texting, and I was the only one who could see it, but I was so mad I got up and left, but I, and I spilled my soda on him on the way out. Mm-hmm. And Uh, on purpose? Yes, on purpose. And I felt bad about it the next day. So I was processing it. But the great thing was, while I was processing it, they were like, okay, so why did you feel so bad? And like other people in the group were like, Why didn't you just get up and move? Why didn't you move to another seat? And I said, Because I was right. I don't have to move. Oh shit, I just said that out loud. Oh man. Why am I the policeman for the world and they're like, "All right, let's ask that question." And so you get to the the heart of it because you have to be uh, the bottom line is you have to be accountable for your actions and for your feelings cuz no one else is going to and it's only going to, you know, cause more trouble. So, you know, they're like, "Okay, so what else could you have done?" And that's really the best part. And you think, "Well, what could I have done? I could have lost my temper and yelled at him?" No, you could have tapped him. You could have switched seats. You could have stepped outside and come back in. You could have left. No one's making you stay in the movie. There's like all these things that I could have asked an employee to go talk to him. Exactly. And, and then, and then they point out, and by the way, but I like what you did. (laughs) Right. So do I, but then Brian points out. And also let's remember, you don't know why you can't read his mind. You don't know why he's texting. And I, and I, and I immediately went, Yeah, you know what? Maybe his friend tried to kill himself and he's in the hospital and he can't get a hold of him. And he's asking his wife, how is he doing? And I thought that's exactly what happened to me. When I was in the hospital, nobody could get a hold of me. And Jim and my wife were trying to disseminate information to everybody. That could easily be what he was doing or worse. uh, He could have been some crazy a-hole with a gun in his backpack. And when I bumped into him and sold my soda, he could have pulled it out and shot me. That's not unheard of, you know, that people get shot in the movie theater. So, you know, as funny as it is and it, eh, to spill a soda on a guy on purpose, it really is irresponsible and fucked up and it's not the right thing to do. And and that's what you get at. That's the what we get at in in the therapy is that basically you say these things out loud and you hear yourself say them and you look around and everybody goes, hmm, yeah, that sounds about right. And so you get that immediate uh, feedback. So w- w-
0: would it be fair to say then is that you, one of the things you learn is that it's, o- it's okay to have any kind of feeling. That's not a reflection of who you are, but how you express that is, is what's important. What you do with that Absolutely. feeling.
1: Yeah. Because feelings, you know, are not right or wrong. They are what they are. But the fact that you, Their conscious feelings gives you the, the, you know, the leg up, gives you the opportunity to deal with it. And there are just... A multitude of coping skills you can use and again that's one of the th- like in a handout they gave us it was like look at all these coping skills meditation deep breathing talking to a friend I was like really that's a coping skill talking it out oh I should do that more often and that's the other that's if there is any upside to uh trying to kill yourself it's that people give you a wide berth when you get out of the hospital <laughs> that's the time to take advantage of them yeah because you can say to people listen I may be oversharing or whatever, but right. I think you're awesome. Like I said, I love you to a lot of different people that I was scared to share that with yeah. or just people or just people that I wanted to say, you know what? I've always felt that there was a block or something in our relationship or I always felt that you maybe resented me or I resented you and I want to squash that. And normally, you know, a guy like me or you would go, all right, easy. You don't need to get all Doctor Phil on us, but when you just get out of the hospital, a reasonable person goes, "Oh, okay, cool, that's cool," because they they know you're yeah. trying to get through shit. So I took advantage of that a hundred percent. I I mean I and a lot and a lot of it getting back to the guilt about the way I treated my mom. You know, I still every day I have to deal with this crippling guilt about the way I treat women, and I try to really be a voice for the unvoiced uh, and try to be on the right side of history especially now but I feel like I have to be a voice for that other you know to make up for all the other shit that I've done and again that's not a real thing I don't owe anybody anything like that but I can then cope with it if you know because I can't change anybody's mind really and you know in the old days when I used to just seek out people on the internet to argue with on Twitter and Facebook Mm. and stuff now I I say, I, maybe I'll have an opinion, but but I can now st- stop myself and go, oh, this isn't going anywhere. You know, the, the
0: day that you, that it really is cemented in your mind that you're not the world's police is like getting out of prison. It is like yeah. getting out of prison when you realize, oh, I'm not a bad person if I let other people, you know. <laughs> act the way they want to act. Yeah. It's none of my fucking business.
1: And the funny thing is like, sometimes we all get angry on injustice. We'll see someone who's just post some horrible virulent thing. Like uh, this Colin Kaepernick guy, this Mm. football guy, obviously the racists were happy to swarm on him Mm. and use the N word and stuff. And it makes, makes us mad. And you just want to say, I don't care what you think about him. Don't say that. Don't Mm. say that word. But then it gives you, it's nice to be able to stop and go, oh, he just was looking for an excuse to use that word. He really couldn't care less. And so there's so much power in clicking the block button on that guy. And and saying, thank God I'm not that sick person. Right? Mm. I don't know him and I don't know anybody like him. And it's funny because I'm sure you, like me, have a million like Facebook friends that you've Mm. never met before. You know, people who listen to the podcasts podcast or whatever. But every once in a while, you'll see one of them post something, and you go, oh. Click. That's who you unfriend. are. Unfriend. Yeah, okay, bye. Yeah. And you know what? I don't care how many emails you sent me going, hey, man, your podcast is great, and do this, yeah. and you're clearly a douche. And yeah. I have no responsibility to you. I don't owe you
0: one thing. Right. So goodbye, motherfucker. Let's go to the last session of that first day.
1: Okay, Uh, I did the regular check-in thing and then we did the processing for the second hour. Third hour was, I think it was about meditation, where they were teaching us the different ways you can meditate, and that was an eye-opener because I always thought meditation was sitting for an hour quietly listening to music. But that's not it at all. Mm, You can meditate for five minutes, ten minutes. You can walk and meditate. I downloaded an app on my phone that my wife gave me. I love it. I sit in my backyard and I listen to it. Sometimes in between sessions, I would sit and do ten minutes. It's amazing. And then you keep track of it, too, now. Mm -hmm. So that was a big eye-opener. So then we had lunch. And then the hour after that was gardening. And is this lady who never once asked me how I'm doing. How are you feeling? None of that. We tore up newspaper and made mulch and, you know, dug it around and she showed me the garden they have there, which is pretty great. And she's like, here's some Jasmine. It smells really good. And there's chocolate mint down there and here's fennel. So now every day I'm there in between sessions, I go over and I grab some Jasmine or whatever and I smell it and I rub it on my hands. But we just spent the whole hour just kind of chatting and making mulch and talking about the garden because the, the campus is amazing. It's been a hundred years and they have trees from all over the world. And so we were looking at trees and stuff. And like I said, never once did she ask me, how do you feel? You know, what, how are things going? You got any homicidal thoughts? We didn't talk about that at all. Um, Which you it- liked. Yeah, and I loved it because I I would imagine the
0: purpose of that was mindfulness. Exactly. That's that
1: was the whole point to be mindful and to be useful. You know, gardening is obviously you don't hurt anything when you're gardening.
0: Well, you haven't seen me garden.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then the next day was music, and that was a little more about like it was just me and the music guy, and he he told me the story about Tom Petty. I don't know if you ever heard this story when he was in that really terrible deal with his record company mm-hmm. and the judge said you're done with this i guess the thugs uh, working for the record company lit his house on fire mm. you heard that mm-hmm. and he was forced to the house burned down he was forced to move out and he was really depressed but then he got out of it and then he wrote i won't back down was the the what came out of that. So the guy told me that whole story and I was like, well, that's, that's really quite an uplifting story from Tom Petty. And he's like, so let's sing the song. And he pulls out his guitar yeah. and the two of us sat there and sang, I won't back down. And it was awesome because I liked to sing yeah. and, uh, I didn't feel self-conscious cause it was just me and him. And I was able to sing and actually, you know, hear the lyrics and apply them to my life you know about how I'm not going to back down from my depression and my anxiety and my fear of the daily uh, daily stresses I have and uh, and it was like I was just like wow how do you guys do it how do you know the things to say cuz at one point we were cr- we were singing and I just burst into tears I couldn't take it anymore something that we said some one of the lyrics reminded me of my kids or something and I just lost my shit and I was like wow you guys are good at what you do and he, he kind of smiled and was like yeah this is but it, the great thing is uh, you know like you said crying is so healthy and so cathartic uh, that that's everybody says that like once they get you crying it's almost like here we go let's do it let's do it's it it's
0: your soul blowing a load paul
1: it really is it really is one day i was uh i was talking about something with, with my therapist and i went i'm sorry uh, i'm sorry i'm getting a little choked up here and he goes yeah like he was yeah. ready. This is not the place to apologize, <laughs> right? He goes, he goes, "Yeah, if you want to yeah. cry, do it." It was almost like he was oh, pushing yeah. me. I high five
0: people when they said, "Man, I, you know, was bawling my eyes out." I'm like, "That's yeah. awesome." This is the
1: yeah, and especially for dudes, you know, obviously it's harder for guys to cry in front of people because of society and whatever. But if you can get past that. And, you know, therapy in a hospital, well, that's the place to do that, yeah. man. And if you can find a support group,
0: I have a, a, a support group that I go to, it, and it, this one is just men, mm-hmm. and we cry in front of each other. We crack dirty jokes. Yeah. We, we, it runs the gamut and is so safe to be yourself in there. And it's yeah. really where I've learned to, to grow up and start to become a man. And
1: it's And it's strange to think that you're almost 50 and you're just starting to become a man. It's a little sad yeah I feel that same way I've had two marriages and two kids and I'm only now figuring out who I am but the great thing about it about groups about meetings about therapy is that when you do all that and you walk out into your regular life you feel 20 pounds lighter you feel stronger you feel braver you feel like man I just broke myself down in there and look here I am put back together so fuck you people i can i can face anything and it's and it's amazing because they're i only go three days a week now and some and i go monday tuesday friday so sometimes shit will happen on a tuesday afternoon and it's rough getting through to that Mm -hmm. friday morning but i can keep it together because i know i'm going to get in there on friday i'm going to unload everyone's going to be supportive i'm going to get some good advice the funny part is when they say, when you give yourself the advice, when you unload and go, but I guess I could have done this or that or this, and they all go, mm, yeah. well, try that next time.
0: That's recovery, man. <laughs> That's recovery.
1: It's fucking crazy.
0: Well, yeah. dude, I'm uh, I'm glad you're around. Thank you very much. I'm glad much. you're around. It would have really broke our, our hearts to yeah. have have lost you without getting a chance to... Tell you we love you because I'd never mm. I'd never told you that I that I love you until we talked on the phone after it. Yeah, and it was
1: it's funny because you you were one of the f- few people who actually
0: called me. You know when I
1: got home, I had a million texts and emails and stuff from fans and listeners and because uh, <laughs> I don't know if you saw, but when I was in the ambulance on my way to the second hospital to the Nut House, I had my phone and I took a picture of the back of the ambulance mm-hmm. and I said new headshot. Uh, but then I texted, hey, just try to kill myself, everybody. I'll try to live text while I'm in the hospital. And then they took away my phone. So that's all people heard. So some people thought I was kidding. Obviously, mm-hmm. some people didn't know what to make of it. One girl t- sent me a, a tweet that said, if this is a joke, I don't get it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's not a joke. So It was a tweet for help. Yeah, it was absolutely. And if you look at like my tweets before that... Mm-hmm. You'll see, like one of them I said, I I came up with this great joke, which I thought was hilarious at the time knock, knock. Who's there? Nobody. (laughs) Nobody ever. (laughs) That's pretty funny until two days later when I tried to kill myself. So, Uh, but it's great because now I can talk about it. Uh, I don't have to hide it. I can talk about it like, in fact, when I say, when I talk about trying to kill myself, I often say, When I killed myself, it comes out, you know, when I killed myself, I blah, 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 because that's what I feel like. I feel like I succeeded in killing that person who was completely ill-equipped to deal with what was going on. And I'm not that person anymore. I'm not as sad. I'm not as depressed. I'm not as scared. I mean, I'm still, uh, you know, I'm still a work in progress like we all are, but I killed that person and I came out a different guy. And I, I couldn't have done it without your help and the help of everyone who uh who reached out. And if there's anything I can say is that if you need help, please reach out. Cause sometimes people just don't know and they're caught up in their own shit and they don't notice it, even family members. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy, you know, for them to overlook it. And when you say you need help, you know, that's all it takes is just please I need help. And if someone says that to you, you know, Take them seriously. Don't underestimate it and just let them know that they are loved. You can tell the people who I talk to who have been through it because they all say, You are loved. You are loved over and over again. And, and it, it never gets, I, I never get tired of hearing it. It's, it's a great thing. So I appreciate
0: it. And if people want to find your podcast, well
1: I'm wrapping up my second podcast hey watch this but you can that's available on iTunes we got two more episodes because I'm moving to okay. Arizona but I'll be doing more stuff uh, the best thing to do is follow me on Twitter mm-hmm. at Paul Goble show anytime i'm performing or doing a podcast or whatever when this comes out i'll you'll you can do do it there
0: and we'll put a link on the website to all all your stuff
1: and uh and you can be my friend on facebook i'm happy to friend anybody who is cool Mm -hmm. if you turn out to be a douche i'll just block you later on but uh i'm not so famous that i have two facebook pages (laughs) so uh yeah feel free to reach out i'm happy to hear and and You know i responded to everybody who was like hey glad i glad you're around you know glad you you didn't succeed and it's great to hear and so you know those kind of real honest sentiments are are what makes it what makes life worth living so i appreciate all the support and i hope to hear more of it thanks buddy yeah
0: many many thanks to uh to my buddy paul um before i uh do some surveys uh i want to um give some some love to our sponsors uh let me tell you about madison reed madison reed started with a simple mission to make luxurious at home hair color with ingredients you can feel good about madison reed is a uh, salon quality hair color with an authentic personal touch they're so passionate about you loving your color expert colorists support you every step of the way madison reed brings the prestige pampered salon experience to the time-saving time-saving, money-saving convenience of your home. You can experience shiny, beautiful, natural-looking hair color with Madison Reed. It's made with ingredients you can feel good about. Uh, it's the first-ever, six-free, permanent hair color, free of ammonia, parabens, resorcinol, PPD, phthalates, and gluten. It's crafted in Italy, just outside Milan. Uh, it's infused with nutrient-rich keratin, argan argon oil, and ginseng root extract to protect and pamper your hair like never before. Madison Reed delivers salon-quality color to the convenience of your own home. Choose from over 40 luxurious shades for every skin tone and hair texture. With 100% gray coverage and the support of Madison Reed expert colorists who will guide you every step of the way, you can color with total confidence. Find your perfect shade at Madison Reed... I'm sorry madison-reed.com try it, love it, satisfaction and happiness guaranteed, that's the beauty of Madison Reed so go find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with the offer code HAPPY and uh, I will put all of that there will be a link uh, on this, on this episode on our website um and I want to also give some love to uh, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all of the top job sites. And now you can. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter is a search engine for finding and posting jobs. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy to use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And if you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. It's been featured on Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, New York Times, TechCrunch, and CBS. ZipRecruiter's website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches. So right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Uh, Let's do it one more time. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. Um, in case I forgot to mention it too um, uh, about the Patreon thing, um, the link for that I will also put on, on this episode. Um, it will be going up. Uh, we'll have the link on our um, the homepage of our website shortly too. Um, and the rewards uh, that I'm going to give out uh, are will be kind of uh, sporadic and ongoing. And right now, I haven't quite nailed down what they're going to be, but by the end of this week, it'll be solidified. And uh, like I said, some will invo- involve Herbert's butthole. Some will involve Pop Tarts, maybe a little Earl Grey, uh, rating surveys, um, DJ voice. Have I, have I got you on the edge of your seat? Yes, Paul, you do, but that seat is a toilet. Let's do some surveys. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Wicked Witch of the Pine Barrens and about her anxiety. She writes... Um, constantly coming up with doomsday scenarios for every possible occurrence, the upside being that I experience a lot more relief than I think most people are used to. So when the sky does not in fact fall, and I'm very rarely caught off guard when it does, uh, I get that. I get that. Sometimes I will have immense relief when I stand up after bending down and sipping at a water fountain, um, almost in disbelief that somebody hasn't chopped my head off. Uh, snuck up from behind and chopped my head off your i don't know how to pronounce this name i'm, I'm going to give it my best shot your kiarchy is showing i think uh that may be short short for patriarchy um they're gender fluid and about exper and about uh experiencing racial or cultural bias knowing that no matter where i go no matter how quote, respectable I act and carry myself. No matter how hard I try to educate myself and others, and no matter how peaceful and polite I am in the face of racism, I will be nothing more than a N-word to some. Snapshot from their life. I had an anxiety attack in class the other night, and because I was sitting in the front, I couldn't bring myself to get up and walk out for fear of my classmates noticing me and knowing exactly what was happening to me and why I was leaving. So I just sat there with my mind racing so fast that it made me dizzy to the point of nausea, tears burning down my face, feeling every muscle in my body tense up and I couldn't move. My God, that that is a fucking nightmare. Um, my professor soon noticed and later ushered me out of the class inconspicuously during a small group activity. She then took me into an empty classroom and said I could stay there as long as I needed. I turned off the lights after she left and sat in the dark, allowing myself to return to reality after I had broken into a full-blown panic attack after leaving class. When she came back to check on me later, she said the classes had ended and caught me up on what I had missed." I missed class ends at 8 30 p.m which means i was in there for two hours and 15 minutes when i thought i'd only been gone for about a half an hour my god and what a compassionate teacher man what a compassionate teacher that's so great that uh that they were they were able to um give you what you needed in that moment. Uh, Any comments to make the podcast better? This is more for this survey and not necessarily the podcast itself, uh, and then parentheses, which is great, by the way. I would change the wording of question three from sexual preference to sexual orientation. Calling it a preference implies that we have chosen it or that it's optional. Thank you for that. That is a great suggestion, and so I went back into the struggle in the sentence survey and edited it, so Instead of saying uh, sexual uh, preference, it says sexual orientation. Um, This is uh, filled out by Implorable, and she shares about her depression, uh, dysthymia. Like a dream where I'm conscious but still incapable of changing anything. God, that is is such a good description. Um, Other compulsive behaviors, bad sex with older men, uh, and then parentheses, not sugar daddies. Uh, let's put it this way when someone's that when someone that bad for us was elected president I understood why a lot of uh, people's feelings uh, being expressed in the surveys um, this this week uh, about about the election and um, I have made the decision to not edit those out because they those are not my Opinions; Those are people's experiences. And um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by Noir. She is um, bisexual in her 40s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse, and reported it. She writes, when I was 11, my brother's best friend tried to coerce me into having um, sex with him. He was 14. Uh, Number two, when I was 14, a man stopped my bicycle and made me watch him ejaculate. It was my first sexual experience. Three, when I was 15, a stranger exposed his penis to me and a friend as we were walking home. Uh, I didn't report that one. The bicycle incident happened on the border of two towns, so I had to tell this story to two small-town cops. The first one did all the classic blame the victim moves. Look at what you're wearing, God! That is unfucking believable that somebody would say, "Look at what you're wearing." First of all, to anybody, let alone to a fourteen or fifteen year old child. Um. Uh, Look at what you're wearing. I never let my daughter even cross the street by herself. He made me create a composite of the man's face even though I could remember no details, so I was worried some random stranger resembling the composite was going to be reported or arrested as being the attacker. The second police station, I had a dedicated sex crimes cop and she told me I was very brave and did the right thing and gently questioned me. I wasn't allowed to ride my bike alone anymore. The fallout from that incident was much worse than the actual incident. It was my welcome to womanhood in this society. I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. <sighs> um, she's never been physically abused, but she has been emotionally abused. And the most recent one is a doctor that she, that she has. It is not a, um, um, uh, psychiatrist. It's a, it's an MD and, um, and she lives in the boonies, you know, like we were talking about before and doesn't have much choice, uh, for finding another doctor. And, um, Deepest, darkest thoughts. I am so angry and hurt and sad. I fantasize about different kinds of revenge I could unleash on him. She's talking about the doctor. I've also fantasized about getting revenge on a boy who tormented me in fifth grade and is now a surgeon. Um, I imagine getting an appointment with him under some medical pretense. And then when I see him, I ask him if he remembers me from uh, elementary school and if he remembers bullying me. He invariably denies it or laughs it off, and I get right up in his face and plunge a knife in his belly, look into his eyes as he takes his last breath. Um, if you've never seen the movie, uh, there's a movie kind of about that um, called The Girl Most Likely uh, with, um, oh God, who is it? I think it might be Stockard Channing, and it was written by uh, Joan Rivers. It came out, I want to say, in like the late 70s, early 80s darkest secrets i once accidentally killed a pet rat by forgetting to feed it this tortures me well i'm sure i'm sure it does but it's time to forgive yourself you know beating yourself up is is not not uh, what any sentient thing with a uh, you know would oh shut up paul um Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about having sex with more than one man at a time. They are both, um, slash all worshipful of me, beg for my attention, and take turns fucking me and pleasing me. Also, I fantasize about accidentally seeing a very hot guy beating off. I'm watching from a distance, and eventually he realizes I'm watching. He's surprised, but it totally turns him on. You know i I had a guest share uh with me privately one time off uh you know off mic um that uh she she has a similar uh fantasy and she's has a tremendous amount of shame about it because she feels like it's unfeminine to um get turned on by watching a guy uh, masturbate and um I'm just kind of curious is is to because I don't hear that one very often and and I wonder is it because of um uh, women have been exposed to um that earlier in their lives or it's just cuz the penis is ugly or they want an emo- uh, an emotional attachment as opposed to you know it just being object in ob- objectifying a body Um, But uh, one of the reasons I wanted to read this survey is this is such a great example, in my opinion, of how things that were traumatizing to us as children can often trigger a sexual fantasy later in life. And it's the brain's way of trying to deal with that trauma. And it's not a comment on your morality. We have no control over what turns us on. Um, Anyway... Thank you for sharing all of that stuff. This is a What Has Helped You survey. And um, she struggles with uh, anxiety and maybe depression and alcoholism. And what has helped her? uh, Mostly, it's little things and going to therapy. I love when I finish totally cleaning my house, doing my laundry, vacuuming cleaning the litter box, scrubbing the bathtub. After I finish cleaning, I get a cold shower, change into some fresh pajamas, and slip into my bed that now has fresh sheets. There are other things, but that one comes to mind now as I type. You know, uh, I also, after I clean, I take a cold shower, but that's because I get turned down by vacuuming. Oh yeah, and it's not the shape of the vacuum. It's the two U's in vacuuming. Look like a, a, a pair of boobs. and um, That's the only thing, actually, that I can't believe I haven't shared those with you for five years, but the only thing that gets me sexually excited are words that have uh, letters that look look like body parts in the middle of them. (laughs) Uh, What have people said or done that has helped you? I always love when people text me just to say hi or ask me how I am. It makes me feel like some part of the world thinks about me. Also, when I can tell my girlfriend things and she doesn't judge me. She just tells me to try and stay in the moment. She knows how hard it can be for me and she always says I do a good job and she knows how hard I try. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for, uh, for that. Oh, her name is Rachel. Thank you. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Addie. And she writes "Uh, i received counseling through my university if you miss one appointment they refuse to see you again yesterday was a bad day for me and i missed my appointment because i got the times mixed up i couldn't even walk home i ended up crying and having a panic attack in the bathroom for 45 minutes the second i pull myself together enough to walk out of the stall my therapist walks in i immediately tell her i'm sorry and burst into tears she told me it's okay and made me an appointment for after the thanksgiving break god do i i I just love therapists that that get it you know that just help you feel seen and felt and and safe this is uh filled out by twice the rides in byland that probably means something and i don't know what it uh oh i see because they're uh bisexual um She writes about her ADD. It's like living with a teenage kid in my brain. I always have to be the mom telling my brain to focus, shut up, do your homework, be careful, etc. It's exhausting. About her bulimia. When I binge, I feel as if my soul will never be full or content. When I purge, I feel as if I must rid myself of everything or else my soul will explode. Boy, there's such vivid descriptions. Thank you for that. Um, snapshot from her life. I try to avoid the grocery store alone, but sometimes I must go in for staples like toilet paper, coffee, and milk. When I'm walking through the store, the voice starts in my head saying, this will be the last time. It's okay. You deserve it. Next thing I know, I'm home with bags of junk food, and I devour it as quickly as I can. I'm a student, and I can't afford this, but I do it anyway. I got behind on my bills one month recently just to buy junk food that I would vomit as quickly as possible. How is it I can pull straight A's in difficult classes for my graduate degree, but I can't manage to get out of the grocery store without $50 worth of vomit disguised as groceries? And I think there's a simple answer to that because getting straight A's it is an intellectual Endeavor and dealing with bulimia is an emotional and possibly even spiritual endeavor endeavor and yeah there's a mental part to it to it too in terms of understanding what you're dealing with, but you know you don't have to process trauma or neglect or painful emotions um to to do well on a test so um I guess that's my way of saying, stop beating yourself up, said the pot to the kettle. (laughs) This is the babysitter survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Word Vomit-er Day Baby. I think I pronounced that right. I don't know. Um, But she's gay and uh, in her 20s. And... She writes, It's a hazy me- memory as I still have not addressed it or worked through it. My older sister, who was my constant babysitter and acted more like a mom to me than my own mother did, did things to me that I've never forgotten uh, at the same time. I remember not wanting to do it back to her, but she did towards me. I do remember that later that evening, uh, I said, that was fun. We should do it again. She said, no, it's never going to happen again. And it never did. But I've never talked to her about it. We're very involved in each other's lives as far as the fuck-up in the family can be with her white sheep siblings. Um, Did you ever tell anyone... Uh, did you think it was normal? Do you believe it had any effect on you? Um, uh, I had previously, when four, uh, been molested and never told anyone until I was 11 years old. I was probably six or seven tops when this happened with my sister. By then, I'd had multiple, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Um, uh, so no, I have never really said anything to anyone. I've told a couple of people as an adult that it happened but never really felt anything attached to it until today. Uh, What feelings come up uh, remembering these things? Uh, If I open this door, I have the capability to break it down and really process it, especially with my therapist, but I'm already so exhausted. So, so exhausted. I have the notorious BPD and I already have to fight every day. I don't want to open the door. I don't want it to suck me in. I never know what my brain is capable of making, um, is capable of making my entire brain and soul feel from one moment to the next. Ugh. Do you feel any damage was done? Damage, uh, most likely. She's my only sister. I honestly question if she remembers, but of course she does. She was a teenager, fully developed. Damage was done. Along with my other experiences, damage was definitely done. Just really am not interested in finding out how right now. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Oh, I have to read this. Any comments to make the podcast better? Honestly, at first, your voice annoyed the shit out of me. But now I find you hilarious, so it makes up for your voice, I guess. But I was trying to find something wrong with something that I knew was slowly saving my life. I clean houses for a living, solo. There have been days that I've been hidden out in someone's bathroom, shaking, bawling as quietly as possible, and throwing up with anxiety, mania, depression, you name it. This podcast has proven to be the best to get me headed back to reality and being okay. As famously said, uh, the episode Emotional Neglect was a game changer for me totally. That's the episode with uh, Dr. Janice Webb. So many things made sense. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my overly sensitive and screaming heart. Uh, Thank you. I would love to meet you in person and really uh, hear each other's stories. uh, Thank you so much for sharing that. That really, really um, um, means a lot to me, and I'm sorry that you are struggling and um, yeah Uh, this is uh, what has helped you filled out by a woman who calls herself garlic bread makes me come you guys are the fucking best you are just the best Um, her issues are depression social anxiety anorexia and binge eating Um, what's helped you with them sitting in a dim room in bed with my cat I'll listen to a great podcast and embroider or use coloring and coloring books. No creative pressure, just relaxation. Hours can go by and I won't obsess about what my next meal is. It's not like a Netflix binge either because I don't really feel guilty afterwards as I've been using my mind in creating something constructive. That is awesome. That is awesome. And I would imagine that that keeps you really, uh, really present, you know, like, uh, Paul was talking about in, in, uh, the interview about the the gardening or playing the music. Um, same survey filled out by Purple Love, and uh, her issues are grief, trauma, and depression. And what has helped her? Friends, love, coffee, ice cream, friends, books, and music. What have people said or done that has helped? Listening, sitting with me in my pain, distracting me, loving me despite the baggage. Beautiful. Beautiful. Short and sweet and to the point. Uh, Hablo Español shares an awfulsome moment. For the last year, I've been studying Spanish. A couple of months ago, I found myself translating all my thoughts into Spanish. I thought, this is so great. I'm really improving. Then I realized I was translating all my thoughts, which means that I can now call myself a stupid, idiot, loser in two languages. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Ashley uh, shares about her depression. Freezing to death, but unable to grab the blanket two feet away. Man, that's a good one. About her anxiety. Every single person who walks past you on the street, you imagine viciously attacking you, but you keep walking anyway. About her anger issues. Constantly being angry that other people have the audacity to be angry. Snapshot from her life living thousands of miles away from my father, but still going into a full-fledged panic attack when I hear a motor- motorcycle start up because it could be him. Man. Oh. You know, those of us have, who have never really spent time around trauma survivors have no idea of the breadth and depth of the struggle they have with things that trigger them in everyday life, which is why assaultive behavior being written off um, in the last couple of months is so saddening. Sassy Asshole shares about her depression, feeling excuse me, irritated at everything, yet having no energy to do anything about it about her self-harm, feeling, feeling like I can't breathe until I see those ribbons of red following, followed by shame for being so weak and pathetic. You are not weak and pathetic. You're just feeling overwhelmed by your emotions, which we all experience at some point or another, and you are not weak. You're probably a beautiful, sensitive person who was probably raised in an insensitive environment or with well-meaning parents that just had no tools to pass along to you. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Only Smoke and uh, she writes, I've felt depressed most of my life and was diagnosed with depression and anxiety last year. I'm 25 This was actually one of the most helpful things for me, and I felt great relief knowing that I can say, it's not just me being lazy or overreacting, etc. I have a name I can put to this thing. It helped me externalize this very internal problem. I felt I was the depressed symptoms, but now I can see them as a symptom, not as my identity. I think this is something that's been shared before, but it was just such a strong moment for me that I had to put it down here. I work in mental health on what we call, quote, the front line. At a halfway house. I was also diagnosed with PTSD a year ago. It involved something at work that I witnessed. It was honestly the worst thing that's happened to me, and I still have nightmares about it, and I still work there. Being at work is very triggering at times. From this experience, however, I've learned uh, through some really shitty times what dissociation is like, what it's like to feel like I'm in a video game, to not trust my own memory or feelings or judgments anymore. In a way, I feel that this hideous and terrifying trauma has made me better at my job, better at understanding the people I come into contact with and work with. It's also made me open up more at therapy and look at my own dark thoughts, I have more compassion for myself, and I truly don't think this would have happened without this experience. I guess this isn't funny, but it is—it has felt less like a—but it has felt less like a blessing and more like a curse in disguise, which is better than just a curse. Thank you for that, and I wholeheartedly agree that um, if we can get some gets, you know, some processing done and decrease the intensity of that wound or whatever it is. We can be so helpful to people around us. We can be of such comfort. Uh, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by JJ. He is straight in his 40s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Uh, He writes, Parents meant well, provided for my sister and I. Mom had depression. The more I think about it, uh, but nothing out of the pail i uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I have some very vague and shadowy memories of possibly being touched and being made to touch an uncle when I was very young because I'm not 100% sure it happened or if it was some bizarre dream. I cannot say that I was sexually abused. Before I became sexually active, uh, whenever I would masturbate, I would fantasize about being masturbated by an older man while I masturbate him. I view this entirely different activity than normal, quote, garden variety self-sex is I usually think about heterosexual slash group sex situations. Because of that, yeah, I do wonder if something happened back when I was a uh, tussleable young blonde boy. Um, He's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I was bullied relentlessly when I was in middle school. I was beaten about the head, Taunted, laughed at, made sport of, treated as a non-person. The bus ride to and from school was a daily exercise in being self-limited. I would be beaten up and the bus driver wouldn't do a damn thing to stop it. Teachers would see me getting abused and they'd do nothing to stop it. Parents tried reaching out to the school, which made everything worse. I was a walking, breathing, punching bad, bag. I had at least three nervous breakdowns in middle school. I would get home, lock myself into my room and start throwing things while screaming and crying. I would beg my parents to keep me home so I wouldn't have to take this bus ride. The highlight of seventh grade was that I broke my ankle which allowed me to stay home from school for a few weeks. That's just pathetic. In fact, I find myself as a grown ass man angry at the younger version of me. I should have just defended myself. Why did I let them abuse me? Why didn't I bash the fuckers in the face? It's almost as if I'm identifying with my abusers in that regard. Pathetic little shit wouldn't defend himself. This breaks my heart to read A, what that little kid had to fucking go through. B, you know, you go in and feeling like locking yourself in your room um, was like the safest place that you could go and feeling judging yourself for being glad that you had a broken ankle um, who wouldn't I I think the average person probably would have broken their own ankle to, to not go um while it didn't in- involve abuse, um, I was really, really small for my age, and all my friends were on the football team in uh, in middle school, and it, it, I did not enjoy it because uh, it was just it. I just got bounced around, uh, but I would always go to practice, and at one of the practices, I broke a finger, and I was never as happy as I was because. Then I just got to go to the practices. I didn't have to wear uniforms. I didn't have to exercise. And I got to hang out with my friends. So, um, if I was that overjoyed at breaking a finger and being around friends, I can't imagine how traumatic that must have been for you every fucking day. Sending you a big, big hug, buddy. Um... Any positive experiences with the abusers? No, fuck them all. I should have bashed them all in the head with a goddamn baseball bat until they stopped breathing. I would have been left alone. I have not run into the major offenders later in life. The ones on the periphery, they're different people now and so am I. But if I saw one of the major ones, I'd probably have a difficult time being so sanguine. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. It took years to get to be, quote, normal. I was terrified of my own shadow after high school. College was a wonderful time of self discovery and actualization, and I was able to be the man I am now, but not without bouts of crippling depression and anxiety. I feel as if these stupid years of bullying have fucked me up in ways i'm still discovering are flawed. How could you not be? How could you not be wounded by those but i I believe that we can we can heal and i if you haven't yet uh gone to see a therapist that specializes in trauma and PTSD, I think that would be a really, really great thing for you. Um, Yeah. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes I get these weird impulses to do something extremely stupid and violent. Crash my car into another person's, beat the crap out of a random guy, jump off a cliff. By the way, those three things you listed are some of the most common things that we think about. Uh, I wouldn't act upon any of these impulses ever. I'm a peaceful, generally happy guy. I just get that what the fuck am I thinking that for sensation. I also fear that I'll end up cheating on my wife. I'm a high-drive man, and she doesn't really approach me at all sexually unlike the violent bits i could see myself slipping if this part of our relationship isn't ironed out if i wanted to be celibate i'd have joined the dominican order well i hope i hope that you talk about it you know maybe if you went to go see that therapist uh, you could do some uh, you could also do some, some couples counseling it can really help darkest secrets uh honestly when it comes to awful things they happen during that very compacted period of time as a newly adolescent boy it sounds so fucking pathetic that i'm whining about this when people have gone through so many more awful things maybe there is more perhaps i'll elaborate at a later time it is unbelievable how we will minimize our own shit i mean you lived through fucking hell to hell and you're calling yourself a whiner oh buddy sexual fantasy is most powerful to you Uh, being surrounded by beautiful horny women who want me to make them come I go back with all of them to a large porn set style room and proceed to have a night long orgy making sure each got face fucked well by me to my shame my wife is nowhere in the picture Dude, I've never talked to anybody whose boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, spouse was in their fantasy. I think that's the purpose of fantasy is to imagine what we're not doing in our everyday lives. Um, Have you shared these feelings with others? My wife knows that I feel as if my needs are not being met, but doesn't seem to understand the urgency She knows that I have, uh, as on my mandatory bucket list, that we go to a clothing optional resort in Mexico in the near future. She feels as if all I think about is sex, which is partly true considering we don't have sex that often. And if we do, it's meh at best. Again, I'm afraid that I may act out sexually with another woman. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't know. It feels good to write down some of the stuff I've shared previously, Uh, with only a therapist maybe I should have read this survey all the way through before I started moving my mouth Uh, the bullying stuff always seems to make me exhausted after approaching it I don't know uh, if that was a good thing to think about on a holiday weekend thank you for opening up about that you know Bullying is, uh, it's so minimized. It's so minimized. Uh, This is from The What Has Helped You, filled out by Odd Bird, and her issues are anxiety, depression, grief, and self-hatred. What's helped her? Art. Drawing and watercolor painting. I can't express my feelings, but it quiets down my brain. What have people said or done that has helped you? I go to a monthly art meetup. All ages and all skill levels. No one there is critical. It's about growth. Being with uh, my tribe helped me grow in confidence and take my art as a therapy instead of another reason to punish myself. The social aspect also helps with my social anxiety. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. A great idea. Yeah, when I was uh, woodworking, I really loved having another woodworker hanging out in the uh, in the shop. Um. As long as they didn't uh, run their fucking mouth and make me have to be interested in their life. Oh, did I say that out loud? Um, and that's not true, by the way. This was filled out by Heather, um, and then she puts common name after that. Her issues... Uh, is really conflict. I can't deal with it. it, causes huge anxiety. I'll do almost anything to avoid it. And what has helped? I learned from uh, short term counseling at work that anger is a secondary emotion and not a primary one. Anger represents another emotion, be it frustration, disappointment, etc. Um, and I would even say this is just my opinion, I'm not a therapist, but I did make lasagna once uh, and a pair of short shorts. Uh, while we played a movie from 1992. I believe really the two primary emotions at the root of everything is fear and love. Because even hate to me is not a basic emotion. I think hate is always driven by fear. Um, it's why I... I think support groups are so great because, and therapy, because once you find out what you're afraid of, then when you're agitated, angry, upset, you know, lonely, whatever, um, a lot of times you can go uh, over that fear list and go, what might I be afraid of, you know, happening in the future or what happened in the past? And for me, it's been one of the tools that i i break out most frequently and it almost instantly helps bring me um some peace or some calm uh, I'm with stupid, shares an awfulsome moment. A while back, I was admitted to the psych ward for the infamous 5150. Distraught and crying during the less than proud moment of answering intake questions in the ER, I was approached by a man on the other side of the glass partition who excitedly questioned my allegiance to the Boston Red Sox. I realized that in my depressed and highly emotional state, I had thrown on a baseball cap as it would make me invisible. I'm not a sports fan and haven't realized uh, that uh, the team was winning uh, the game that night. I looked at him, still hungover from last night's bender with makeup running down my face, and all I could think is, you think I'm fucking crying about the game? If I only had a baseball bat, I would have hit a home run on his face. But sadly, I don't know if the Red Sox use bats. Oh hit a home run on his face. This has been a great episode. We got face fucking and we got uh home run face. Uh, I love this name. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by I can't poop at work and she writes about her depression. Ah uh, like standing out in the lawn in the pouring rain while you watch a party from outside the window feeling like a vampire because you cannot get in god that is a good one Uh, about experiencing sexual bias i came out as bisexual in college my closest male quote friends from then on would make threesome and lesbian quote jokes I was even once pressured to make out with a girl. They were all standing around us, telling me I must not really be bi if I didn't want to kiss a girl. I had such low self-esteem that I made out with her. It was the most uncomfortable 30 seconds of my life, and I feel ashamed that I wasn't able to stand up for myself." It is so sad when when people, and I suppose I I, I probably you know, am guilty of this, certainly in my younger life of assuming that people feel because something is a turn-on to me that it must, even in a slight way, be a turn-on to you, which is such a terrible assumption to make. Uh, About living with an abuser, I never knew someone could get so angry because I decided to go to the laundromat without them and then belittle me for two hours about everything else I've done wrong. Snapshot from her life. I'm starting to have a pa- a panic attack as my boyfriend is yelling at me, not making sense, and seeing me as a horrible piece of shit. He has uh, severe borderline personality disorder. Um, I try to go lock myself in the bathroom, unable to speak because of the panic, and he screams louder and louder uh, for me to say anything. I barely manage a week. I can't. And I'm finally able to break away to get to the bathroom. I lock the door, the panic attack in full I-think-I'm-gonna-die mode while he yells at me to come out. Then, 10 minutes later, he's comforting me and telling me he is the piece of shit and that I really didn't do anything wrong. He just overreacted. It's hard to believe I didn't do anything wrong when we just had a three-hour argument. Wow, that has to be... (sighs) That has to be really... Really hard. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by invisible and angry black woman in America uh, about uh, being a sex crime victim, victim of a victim of a never uh, reported shameful sexual assault that took me years to come to terms with. Still to this day, I struggle with the guilt of having been a victim of something I feel like I could have prevented. You know, the first thing that sprang to my mind when I read that sentence was, you know, that would be like saying, um, you know, I got blindsided at an intersection. You know, how could I have let that happen? You know, it it don't apply hindsight to that. That's the last thing you need when you're trying to heal and have compassion for yourself. Snapshot from her life. Being an educated black woman in America, I struggle daily with the triple negative of being a woman, being black, and being an educated professional. I have to be the best at everything because daily I have to defy stereotypes the world places on me. Even when my professional performance is outstanding, it's downplayed. I'm constantly marked as the aggressive black person, but yet my white male coworkers can use profanity in front of everyone, including upper management, and not even receive a blink of an eye. The weight of being a, quote, strong black woman is oftentimes suffocating. I just want it to be okay to have feelings and have those feelings be valued like the country values the feelings of, quote, the all-American girl who is always somehow white, blonde, and forever innocent, in parentheses, rolls eyes. Why can't this country just recognize the anguish it has put so many black people through and furthermore black women? We are oftentimes typecast into one of the following the invisible and unimportant black woman majority of all black women in the eyes of uh, of the world uh, super extra perfect like michelle obama who i love and the angry black woman or morally flawed like the baby mama image white america pictures when they complain about who their taxes benefit uh, the black woman who you know who is unmarried with seven kids all different fathers and all she cares about is her hair and purses None of those are me, and those are stereotypes I am sick of this world putting on me as a black woman. After this election, I have a complete distrust of every white person I encounter. I think, was it you who dismissed the racial problems of this country and deemed it okay to elect a president backed by the KKK? I trust no one, and my anxiety and depression is at an all-time high. I hate this country. I never asked to be here, nor did my ancestors. I feel better for getting that out, but my anxiety is ever impending. I totally dread facing that world of white faces, seemingly always wanting to talk about things that they refuse to understand are inappropriate to discuss. Uh, any any um, suggestions that make the podcast better? Um, Keep doing what you're doing. Can you please have a, please have a few more guests of color? Um, we have had some guests of color, but we can always use more guests of color. Um, and, and when you say that, I assume that you're you're meaning um, uh, Latinos, uh, Asians, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, we just recorded an episode with Royce White, who is a, a former NBA player. Um, he's a professional basketball player and 25 years old, and um, we did a live event, and it was just so great. He's such a great guy, and at 25 years old, so fucking wise. I mean, I think what I, what I was like at 25 years old, uh, it's it's embarrassing. But uh, he lives with OCD and uh, anxiety. And he addresses a race in our interview as well. And there was a member in the audience uh, who I got to talk to afterwards uh, named Jennifer. If you're listening, hi, Jennifer, um, who flew all the way to LA specifically just for um, that event. And she opened up um, when when we went out into the audience with the mics and she opened up I don't know, maybe this is, is Jennifer's survey, but she opened up um, uh, in such a, a beautiful and vulnerable way about that very subject, and I'm going to try to have um, her as a guest the next time she comes to uh, Los Angeles. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by Rosie. And she writes, I drove up to Des Moines from Kansas City for a friend's wedding and had planned to spend an extra day in town to explore the city a little. I've always enjoyed exploring new places, and as much as I love my friend and was happy to be part of her special day, I wanted to plan a respite from the wedding and the pre wedding planning. I spent the morning enjoying the East Village, looking at all the unique shops, and having breakfast at a French cafe. The best, though, was when I went to the art museum. I really enjoy art museums, and they can be deeply personal and emotional experiences for me. By total luck, I was one of the only people in the museum. I didn't feel rush, rushed. I queued up a classical music playlist and moved slowly through the exhibits, really looking at and considering the pieces. I didn't know this before visiting the museum, but it contained my favorite painting of all time, *Automat* by Edward Hopper. I was so surprised and delighted that I shed a few happy tears. That afternoon in Des Moines was so peaceful and made me so happy that I couldn't help smiling all the way home. In that moment, it was hard to think of myself as a depressed person and easy to believe that I won't that I won't always be a depressed person. That just oh, I just love I just love that. Because I have had those moments of where you just feel like the universe is giving you a hug and for me if if i can get that feeling when i'm by myself not by myself in a way of hiding out from people but in a way of i'm going to do something nice for myself and not only not feel alone but feel like i hate this term but feeling feeding that inner child um That's just such a beautiful example uh, of it. And yet, I hate you. I don't know why. But I cast you to hell. I apologize. It's been a while since I cast anyone to hell. And, uh, yeah, that uh, that was not very nice of me. But I felt like maybe I was getting a little too nice. And sometimes throwing somebody to the bowels of the earth... The, the white, hot bowels of the earth um, mixes up the podcast a little bit. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by New York 2016. She's straight in her 20s, uh, raised in a s- slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. And my mother used to hit me before she got on her meds. She has depression and can be very manipulative even while on her meds. She makes me feel guilty for things that happened months ago and never has a problem pointing out all the things I've done wrong to her, but forgets all the things I've done right. Uh, if you have not... Uh, um Listen, although this this would be more than emotional neglect, but um, New York 2016, uh, it probably wouldn't hurt to read um, Dr. Janice Webb's book, uh, Running on Empty. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, I love my mother very much, so I tend to always apologize for whatever she thinks I did rather than stick up for myself. Yep. she's using that wear you down to control you darkest thoughts i sometimes think about what it would be like to have sex with a child sometimes i wish people that i don't like would die in an accident so i don't have to deal with them anymore darkest secrets i molested my sister when i was nine or ten i didn't know what i was doing at the time i had just discovered masturbation and and had my first orgasm all i knew was it felt good so i made my sister get me off and then i did it to her when i look back on it now i feel sick forgive yourself you were a child and you had discovered sex as a way to soothe yourself you were a child If you had been raised in an emotionally nurturing environment where you were felt and seen and boundaries were explained to you, that would be another story. But uh, you were a child, and it's time to be good to yourself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think about being tied up and dominated. Uh, Sharing it makes me feel ashamed. You know what I'm going to say about that one. That is is so common. Am I calling you a commoner? Absolutely. I'm calling you a peasant. Now, that that is one of the most common sexual fantasies that, that I read, and you should not feel shamed at all. Embrace it. Find somebody that enjoys doing it and explore it. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell the man I'm in love with that I love him. He's married with children, so I obviously haven't been able to tell him how I really feel about him. Um, and I would suggest not doing that. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for real happiness. Um, have you shared these things with others? I don't really talk about my feelings. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel ashamed of myself and my thoughts. Man, there are so many of us that feel exactly like you do. You know, you can switch in and out the events, but the feelings, you are so not alone. You are so, so, so not alone. And the thing that really leaps out to me is I don't really talk about my feelings. I think if you make that a priority, finding somebody who's safe to talk to and knowledgeable um, I think that that can help get you headed in the right direction um, this is from the what has helped you survey um, filled out by Mel. And she her issues are childhood verbal abuse, uh, depression, and insomnia. And what has helped her? I'm an escapist in the extreme. At the time, uh, I watched a ton of television and movies and listened to a lot of music. I wanted to inhabit the emotions of others and get absorbed into their stories. Often I veered towards sad songs and movies. And my favorite moments in shows are great defeats. Uh, yeah, by the way, if you hear me listening to a lot of Simon and Gar Funkel, uh tell me to dump, double up on my uh, therapy, uh, I felt that crafted tragedy was more beautiful than real life and used the emotion I got from watching something sad to deal with the emotions I felt in real life. It also made me feel like one day my own story would be useful uh, to someone and help them. What have people said or done that has helped you? To me, perhaps ironically, it's not about grand gestures or big conversations. The most helpful thing that my friends have done for me is to just be there for me when I need them. I've found that's not really anything that anyone can say. i found there's not really anything that anyone can say to make what has happened okay. So now when I'm dealing with a lot of complicated emotion, I just seek out a close friend and being physically... Uh, with them, and talking about inane stuff is helpful. Having people around me who make me feel safe and loved is the most helpful thing I've ever tried. Thank you for that, Mel. Um, Oh, my stomach's grumbling. I love my cat. Uh, Her issues are depression and PTSD. What has helped her? Mostly my friends and family. Having my cat always there when I'm sad. What have people said or done that has helped, listened, offered uh, to help out with things I'm struggling with because of my depression, uh, talking to people who have had similar experiences. All great, great, great advice. Happy moment from Glib Glob. And she writes, I left a culture, cultish religious group about five years ago, which was a really painful experience. A lot of the members I used to know have been gloating on Facebook about voting for a particular political candidate this week, and I've never felt so proud to have left them and followed my own heart. I'm a better person now, and I'm just starting to realize it. Sending you a high five. Um, jugs. <laughs> Uh, this is her struggle in a sentence and, uh, her issues are anxiety and, uh, alcoholism and drug addiction and a snapshot from her life. It was Thanksgiving. My whole family was at my grandma's house. I got up for seconds and my grandma announced, do you really think you want another piece? You little porker. I like how oh, my stomach just fucking growled too. Um, yeah, that, do you really think you want another piece You little porker. I would like you to have said, do you really want to spend your few remaining thanksgivings being a fuckface? No? Then fire up your rascal and drive me over some fucking gravy. Maybe I should be a therapist. That's some good advice. M.S. Omiz Unbreakable shares about her depression. Uh, In my highest bipolar mania, I felt like a god of the universe, zingy, invincible, made of electricity, and in the lowest depression, felt like sandpaper was rubbing on my brain as I trudged through a paralyzing swamp, guilty, ashamed, endless tears destined for hell. About her anorexia, like being in a small metal cage afraid to move in any direction, one inch, to be alone, lonely, a still statue, a mannequin. About her PTSD. Uh, Walking at the park, afraid to wear earbuds because I jump every time a kid on a bike or a lady walking her dog comes up behind me. Um... And uh, other issues took 13 years before I was diagnosed bipolar spectrum. I look back on what could have been for me. Life is good now in treatment, work slash romance stability, but oh, the wasted time. If only I had been healthy, I might have children, more money, security, more freedom, success, power. To which I would say, also consider that you can now be a better friend to somebody who's struggling. And I'm not saying that that is better than the stuff that you wish, but uh, I think there's there's always something positive to, to take out of struggle, or I at least try to look for it. Uh, snapshot from her life. Um, in my 20s, when mental illness had led me to a state of poverty, I would have nothing to eat. I would have nothing to eat and scrounge up hot chocolate packets from work or have nothing to eat at home but margarine and sugar, mix it together and eat it. Oh man. That is that is rough. I'm so glad you're you're feeling better. Um I just want to read one excerpt uh, from this. She um her, uh, She calls herself a little girl. Um, she was a vic- victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And also uh, some stuff happened, but uh, she doesn't know if it counts. Um, and uh, her dad was sexually abusive. And I wanted to read this because uh, any positive experience with the abusers... My parents go out of their way to support me financially. I'm currently doing uh, a program, PhD program in clinical psychology at a top uh, North American university, and they are using their pension to support me. They equate financial support with love. They brag about me to their friends, although I know this is more to show off to everyone how great their lives are. I'm never sure if their praises are from the heart, or to show off to others. I'm not sure if they've ever done a nice thing that's truly from the heart out of love. That is such an important idea that that, or truth because supporting your child financially has nothing to do with supporting your child emotionally. You know, that would be like saying you know, oh, they want bread too, but I, but I gave them water. No, they're, there's like a minimum standard of things that children have a right to. Um, all right, I'm fast-forwarding to the end. This was, uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a uh, guy Uh, I'm going to read this and then tell you the name that he used. Um, He writes, "...my home life was never great, but my grandparents' uh, was always an escape for me. If it wasn't for my grandmother, I don't think I would ever be okay. Staying up late with her and watching stand-up every time we laughed, we would look at each other. Um, She was the water that fed the seed that turned me into a kind soul." I remember near the 4th of July, we stayed up till 1 in the morning, setting off fireworks in people's yards, trying to wake up strangers or maybe people she didn't like. She was just always there for me. I miss her and I still love her. She's the only reason I hope there is an afterlife. I'm not glad she passed. I'm just glad she was there. It is so beautiful. And uh, the name he used, even more beautiful. Grandma never fingered me. You guys are the best. The best. I'm not just blowing smoke. It is not smoke. Um, all right. This is uh, a happy moment filled out by... <laughs> uh, This is like my 20th survey, Uh, their gender fluid, and they write, A few days ago, my sociology teacher assigned us to watch a documentary on mentally ill individuals in prisons. It's safe to say that I cried a lot. My boyfriend saw and asked me what was happening. I explained to him that all I wanted in life was to help them because they should not be defined by their mental illness. He looks at me and said, "Then why don't you? I'd been unsure of my major for months and my anxiety had been skyrocketing because I did not know what I wanted to do with my life. After he said that, the more I thought about it, the happier it made me. This morning, I decided to change my major to psychology and I'm on my way to becoming a therapist. I feel like I finally found my calling. Wow. I know I overuse the word beautiful, but fucking beautiful. And then finally, this is um, a happy moment from Tulip. And Tulip writes, uh, in my late teens, uh, I had seen a therapist after I'd been sexually assaulted. The first appointment was nerve-wracking. It was a dreary day in March in the Midwest. Rather than trot out a bunch of scary labels, she was very frank. that she didn't think I was unstable at, uh, at all, just reaching reacting how a normal person would to that. A year later, I was moving out of the area. I had my last session three days before. I just remember walking out of her office, and I guess it was kind of an omen in contrast to the dreary day of my first session. It was a nearly cloudless blue sky and signs of spring. Five years later, when I was in grad school, I had a mind to write or a thank you note, just as a reminder. Made a difference to that one. Um couple months went by and I'd forgotten about the thank you note. I came back from a trip and saw a letter from her in my mailbox. She said that five years later, she still thinks of me when this topic comes up in the media and expressed thanks for, quote, your gracious note. She concluded with, quote, thank you for letting me be a small part of your life, unquote. However small, it's never too late to express gratitude just i'm overuse it but fucking beautiful beautiful and um go check out uh the thing i was telling you guys about in the beginning of the show betterhelp.com uh mental um and if you're out there and you're you're feeling stuck um you're so not alone Whatever it is that you're experiencing right now it is not going to feel this way forever. Um, Just hang in there. Don't try to do it all by yourself. It's no fun trying to do it all by ourselves. I couldn't. I know I could have never. Um, And uh, just remember you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody up up I know is weird is way bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way.